I'm Alex Shaw. I'm Sharon Shaw. And, and welcome, welcome to, to School of Movies. <laughs> Labyrinth. TriStar Pictures announces the collaboration of three extraordinary talents. Jim Henson, creator of The Muppets and Dark Crystal. Oh! Here you go with a head like that. Hmm? George Lucas, creator of the Star Wars saga. the most innovative forces in modern entertainment, David Bowie. <laughs> Together, they will take you into a dazzling world of fantasy and adventure. There's nothing to be afraid of. A world where anything seems possible, and nothing is what it seems. Everything I've done, I've done for you. I move the stars for no one. The world of Labyrinth. This is one of my favorite movies of all time. It was thus always possible to keep putting it off for a few more months or a few more years or a few more incarnations of my movie podcast. Luckily for everyone, Maya Santandrea came along at the tail end of our commission season 2020 with this as an irresistible quest, marking the point when it is finally time to confront this twisty, turny carnival of dark delights. With us is Hollywood actress Maya Santandrea herself. Hello. Did you just say hello? No, I said hello, but that's close enough. <laughs> oh, your accent's amazing. And <laughs> I may have been imitating that worm for many, many decades. Just saying. <laughs> and Muppet experts from the Rainbow Connection podcast who have, since we last had them on the show, gotten married and combined their maiden names. Mackenzie Eastrum. Hello. And Nathan Eastrum. Hello. Hello.
This film began as a single drawing from a British fairy-obsessed artist named Brian Froud of a baby boy amidst goblins. Jim Henson, having completed The Dark Crystal, decided that that extremely earnest and serious project of his lacked the humour, the singing, the dancing and the razzmatazz of his Muppet comfort zone. So he sought to hit a midpoint, bringing in humans to act with the puppeteered characters. Strangely, after that baby was drawn by Froud, his son Toby was born and appeared to be the spitting image of that exact same child and would then become the on-screen manifestation of an infant stolen away by Henson's goblins. Jim based the story of a young teenage girl having to babysit her brother on his own daughters who were left in charge of the youngest members of their extensive family, most of whom have gone on to become custodians of the Henson legacy. Monty Python's Terry Jones was handed the script and a book full of Froud's fascinating creature drawings and went to town with an extensive script rewrite that would incorporate dozens of little characters from the periphery, making this a treasure trove of humorous little gleep glops. A young Jennifer Connolly fought through the auditions up against stiff competition to take the role of Sarah and the centrepiece of the whole thing was one of the greatest rock stars who ever lived. David Bowie, who became Jareth the Goblin King, and took these ideas away to write music for the film, which, when performed and combined with this intoxicating imagery, made for several unforgettable cinematic moments. There's a reason why we've held off on this for so long. We were going to do it in uh, 2016, because that was going to be the, what, the 30th anniversary? And then David died in uh, January and it became the worst year on record. And uh, though it has been bettered in years since. And worst. <laughs> yeah, bettered worst. We're number one. <laughs> and, then, <laughs> uh, and, and just, it was. Terry Jones died in January. Seems indeed, like a much yeah. better option. But I mean, here's the, it just, it was too painful to talk about. So for these years in between since, we've just been holding it off, but Maya gave us an offer that we couldn't refuse. Now, if you've somehow not seen Labyrinth, you can listen to this show first, and your initial viewing will be all the better as we explore this embarrassment of riches. The story is simple enough. Sarah is 14 years old. She's asked to babysit her baby brother, Toby, and she wishes the goblins would come and take him away. Right now. And they do. The Goblin King then gives her 13 hours to get to his castle at the centre of the labyrinth to retrieve Toby before he becomes a goblin forever. But nothing is what it seems here, and the story runs far deeper than first glance. Give me the child. Through dangers untold and hardships unnumbered, I have fought my way here to the castle beyond the Goblin City. Take back the child that you have stolen. For my will is as strong as yours. And my kingdom is as great. For my will is as strong as yours. My kingdom is great. Damn. Oh, I can never remember that line. You have no power over me. We meet Sarah immediately, and she, I was always kind of, when I was a kid, I was puzzled. Like, is she rehearsing for a play or something? Mm -hmm. But um, she's a, a, a girl who's kind of 
performing a scene from a fictional book called The Labyrinth, and she's trying to remember the words and effectively her part in this book. And this is one of those incredibly gratifying films that, you know how Sharon and I, week after week, read way too much into a movie. This one's one of those movies where they absolutely intended pretty much everything, and everything means something. Mm-hmm. It's got del Toro levels of, uh, of sort of detail layered in. And this is the first time I watched it that I realized that during that first initial layout when Jarrah's pointing over the hill towards the labyrinth, that the canals resemble those on a human brain. This is kind of the inverse of what they did with um, Inside Out, where they made the canals of the brain look like a labyrinth. Yeah. And it's kind of cool that, like, even at the very beginning with this very first scene in this very first setting, it's made to look like you could really be anywhere and in any time period. It's Mm. not really clear what exactly is happening and where we are in the world until Sarah starts speaking outside of the lines of the book. Like Mm. everything is meant to seem very theatrical and very staged, Mm. which kind of blends into what happens later in the rest of the story. Mm. Absolutely. It's It's Sarah's controlled world. Yeah. It's got that (laughs) feeling of, are we in the fantasy already? And Mm. then you've got these little hints and touches that give it away. Like the fact that her, her hair is slightly askew. Mm. Her earrings are a little bit too modern to be in that context. And then we see she's wearing jeans, which is wearing jeans under the dress. Yeah. Major costume. Costume edition that they wanted to give her to make her feel contemporary yeah, to other they kids. Break the illusion. We see her from the back. We can mm. see the barrette and the jeans and the book. And, and jeans under a dress, which is a neat touch as yeah. well. And the fact that she's um, been performing these words, which we didn't see initially, to Merlin. He's been playing the Goblin King for her. Mm. This old English sheepdog, or the young old English sheepdog, Merlin, this magnificent dog just perched very uh, obligingly on a little stone uh, bench. Mm. Yes, it's a very effective bait and switch entry to the film mm. where you you know when you're entering it that it's going to be some kind of a fantasy, but it it lets you really associate with the character in a way that if it had started as pure fantasy may have been a little bit less effective, especially it shows this girl who's clearly not the most popular human being on the planet doing something she loves that's maybe a little bit silly all on her own in this isolated space, really giving in to the fantasies that she she's clearly very obsessed with mm. it also gives that disney layer of um we're telling a story here you get that entry point rather than like with the dark crystal or something like willow where you are in the fantasy right off the bat and sometimes that can be a little bit distancing for an audience who it isn't really into fantasy it's almost like if you communicate okay this is just a story then the fantasy element can sometimes be become a bit more palatable for people who generally speaking are not that into fantasy. I know it's a reference they're intending, but she's just effectively LARPing. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, it's not fair! Oh, really? I'm sorry. Well, don't stand there in the rain. Come on! Alright. Come on, Marlon. Come on. Not the dog. But it's pouring! Go on into the garage. Oh... Go on, Merlin. Go into the garage. Go. Sarah, you're an hour late. I said I'm sorry. Please let me finish. 
Your father and I go out very rarely. You go out every single and weekend. And I ask you to babysit only if it won't interfere with your plans. Well, how do you know? You don't know what my plans are. You don't even ask me anymore. Well, I assume you'd tell me if you had a date. I'd like it if you had a date. You, you should have dates at your age. Ah, Sarah, you're home. We were worried about I you. I can't do anything right, can I? She treats me like a wicked stepmother in a fairy story no matter what I say. I'll talk to her. I always figured as a kid that there was more going on. And as I got older, I was like, oh, this actually really does bear up to deconstruction. And then I got the um, the novel, which was, I believe, republished uh, again in this beautiful hardback form, uh, which goes into details as to Sarah's private life and things that I'd only speculated on before, even though it was written at the time. And this is effectively the, the stuff we didn't get to see. And so much of the rest of the film is all in this first 10 minutes or so, just like what we see of Sarah, her bedroom, and her interactions with her father and her stepmother. There has been a divorce, and her mother has gone. And from this, from what we uh, learn in the book, her mother is an actress, and she uh, works on stage. And from little... Bits and bobs, which I'll, I'll, we'll talk about in just a bit, you find out more about Sarah's mother. And Sarah's mother has had a huge impact on Sarah, a lot of it negative. And most of this film is Sarah internally coming to grips with who she wants to be. So, what did you notice around the room that might tell us about this? There's a bunch of Playbill articles. There are newspaper clippings that say like she had this this very famous onstage romance that kind of hints at maybe there was a little bit of a scandal going on. Like maybe her mother got involved with um, with one of her fellow actors. Like she had a, a romance on stage that kind of bled out into real life, which kind of you know puts a different kind of spin on their relationship like maybe there's a romanticized feeling towards what her mother did as a living as for a living but she didn't quite put together what all that entailed and what the implications would have been for her dad and why that would have led to the divorce you know she's she's 14 so she may be starting to piece that together but maybe not entirely and even throughout like this little scene where it kind of goes through a bedroom, there are all kinds of, you know, very theatrical things. Like there's a book of the Wizard of Oz. There's um, I think there's like a, a Where the Wild Things Are. Uh, there's a Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. There's a lot of like Disney things. There's a lot of stage and film and theatrical stuff all over the place. Mm. She obviously is very infatuated with playing dress up getting into the costumes, play acting these scenes. She's sort of playing at being an adult, but she's also kind of imitating her mom also, which I didn't really pick up on, obviously, when I was a kid. And it was much later where I started to notice these details. But I think it's a great way to kind of seed this coming of age story that she's about to embark on. Yeah, I noticed this time significantly more so than other watcher through is how many photos there are of her mother just around in the space and how many different like theatrical posters she has, especially the very prominent cats poster like right in front of her bed. <laughs> so it's not necessarily that she's got a very deep and abiding taste for theater. It's just that she's got a love for it. Hmm. Yes, yeah, she's gotten quite used to it. It's also a very interesting twist on the traditional fairy tale formula of this tragically dead mother who mm. the daughter like desperately misses where it's no she's just not 
there anymore, and it's not for any, like, over-dramatic, tragic, innocent flower gone too soon reasons. She's just, it's just a divorce. It's just a thing that happens in real life. Mm. And that's a more kind of grounded, relatable thing to people now, but still very in the formula of you can't really have a fairy tale where everything is perfect to begin with. Yeah. Definitely. Her mother is definitely still absent, which fits very closely in with the fairy tale tropes that are all over the film. Yeah, I'm just talking about how much of this movie is telegraphed in this opening scene. There are so many different details that we see in her bedroom that show up later. There's a a poster on her wall that looks suspiciously like the digging machine that mm. the Goblin King sets after them in the tunnels. Yeah, it's called Slashing There's... Machine. It looks like a book or a, a, sorry, even an album cover. Yeah, it's totally there. Yeah, it's especially yeah, when, it, when she goes in the... after the junk lady, uh, that is mm-hmm. right there on the yeah, left of the screen. Yeah, you can really see it there. Oh, and she's got this um, ceramic figurine on her desk that looks a lot like Jared. Oh, yeah. Uh, there's... All of those books that were mentioned before, The Wizard of Oz, the uh, Where the Wild Things Are, I, I wouldn't be surprised if um, Spike Jones took some inspiration from Labyrinth for mm-hmm. his adaptation of Where the Wild Things Are, because there's a lot of very similar building of the world in the, the, the reality of the details before we enter into the fantasy. Well, yeah, they're, they're both stories about young people who uh, are, mm-hmm. are effectively sent to their rooms and uh, yeah. are, you know, feel super justified in being angry about it. And then they fantasize themselves away to a, a, another place. And then they effectively learn to be less of an asshole and come back and <laughs> are more appreciative of, uh, of their parents. Mm. And yeah, absolutely. I can totally see that in Spike Jones's version of uh, Where the Wild Things Are. Yeah. The, the mythology yeah. that is children's literature is a braid. Everything twists mm. in and folds into each other. When she's performing those lines in the field outside of her house, the barn owl is there listening mm-hmm. in. And mm-hmm. we see in the, just coming up when Jareth appears, he appears and transforms out of the form of a barn owl. Mm. So like right from the beginning... He is there, and that idea, that sort of entry into the adult world that she struggles with over the course of this movie is right there from the get-go, from moment one. The thing that stood out for me, the only thing that that nobody's mentioned so far, um, or the the only couple of things, she has a toy of Sir Didymus Mm -hmm. sat on the desk, um, and the Mm -hmm. music box that she's got uh, plays plays as the world falls down. Mm. Um, It's a very sort of delicate version of that song. Put a pin in that musical box for we're going to discuss what that means later when we hit that point. But but the the Mm -hmm. things that I picked up about this introduction to Sarah are actually less to do with her room and more to do with her. Mm -hmm. Um, The fact that she is choosing to spend her free time inhabiting a role and um, doing this LARPing and and, um, getting into something that is both fantastical and lonely, doing it on her own apart from the presence mm. of Merlin uh, that suggests that right off the bat she is more intent on exploring her internal life than she is on expanding her external one her first clash with her stepmother um, is over 
priorities that her stepmother says to her you should have dates at your age and that while that doesn't outright make her wicked by default it does show that her standards for what a 14 year old girl ought to be doing Mm. are very different from what Sarah's idea of what she ought to be doing is oh the other thing I noticed was in the scrapbook that she's got the clippings in there's a little picture of the Disney Robin Hood fox fox yeah Yep, the fox is in there. There's an awakening in there. <laughs> <A little bit>. <laughs> <laughs> um, she's oh yeah, she's also got the um, the Escher painting on the wall, which obviously turns mm. up at the end. And I noticed for the first time her bed is too small for her. Oh. That is a child's trundle bed. Nice. The, when she slumps down on the pillow. Um, her feet almost reach the end of the bed, but mm. she is propped up against the pillows against the wall. If she laid flat and stretched her feet right would out, stick over the end. her feet would maybe not stick out, but they would reach to the end of the bed. And all and this, this being stuff, a set, they had absolutely every opportunity of being able to extend it so it's not just so that they can get extra room. But in it's, the it's just another thing that underlines the fact that she's at this sort of pivotal age where she's. I think they they referred to it in one of the notes about it as she's at the in this kind of twilight phase between um, sort of the twilight of being a child and the dawn of being a, an adult. Um, and there's that's a, a period during the you know during the day when shadows get weird and things look like they shouldn't look and it's the the film starts at seven in the evening it's still light outside but that's just coming into that twilight period the owl is a beast of twilight it comes out Mm -hmm. when things are not quite you know pitch dark but just getting there she's deliberately surrounded by things that she has outgrown yes the the first toy you see in her bedroom is a fiery. It looks like something you'd give a toddler. And that obviously comes in later when, when we meet the fireys. But, like, she's kept everything from her childhood. She's like, hoarding it, which again comes in later. This time I was paying particular attention to it, and a couple of things really resonated. One, if you look at the pictures of her mother, Linda Williams was her name, apparently, and her co-star, it's David Bowie. Her co-star is oh. David Bowie and in the the novel they she it mentions that Sarah went to dinner with her mother and her new boyfriend several times and this guy's name was Jerry and he was sweet to Sarah and almost flirted with her a little bit just in a kind of a sort of a well you're becoming a woman and you know he was sort of very dashing and sort of so basically Sarah's crushing on her mother's boyfriend mm. so it makes absolute perfect sense that the goblin king take the form of this you know, ravishing stage beauty that, that she kind of, like she's putting herself in her mother's shoes and she's kind of trying to follow in her footsteps. And as you said, her mother's maybe not that fantastic a person and seems to have kind of like left that side of her family behind and um, has just, you know, like it's it's fine for her to sort of go off and have her own life. But from the sounds of it, she's kind of seeing Sarah as almost like a trinket. So she's like, oh, yes, Sarah, come over for the weekend. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we'll go out for dinner with Jerry yeah. um, as opposed to really developing a more mature relationship with her and, and being there for her at this absolutely key time. Yeah. And like she's other- an accessory or something. Yeah. 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 And or a her prop. Step- her stepmother isn't able to step in and fill that role because she's busy with her own young baby. Yeah. She is the mother of a toddler, not the mother of a teenager. Yeah. That thread of uh, Bowie being the, the photo model for the boyfriend mm. also lays down this sort of uh, Sarah processing through um, the Electra phase, if you like, which is the... 
allegedly Freud questionable, etc. But the uh, the female equivalent to uh, the Oedipal complex, where you're trying to transfer uh, childish adoration feelings to uh, uh, towards your father away and into the adult world where it will be transferred to other people that you want to form a relationship with. And her own dad, who is around, seems A, distracted with Toby, and B, a little bit insipid and not really there himself. Oblivious. So again, it, it seems sort of in this circumstance, it's fairly natural that as she's trying to resolve, well, am I like my mum? Do I want to be like my mum? This is the person my mum has attached herself to. Those feelings are going to go in that direction. Mm. And this kind of seems to be her way of working all of that out, even if she's not sure if that's what she's doing. We have to be uh, cautious as we navigate the romantic side of this. And I'm amazed that after 34 years, 30, yeah, uh, this film isn't creepy. Because if you look at actually, like, she's, it's, a, it's a 14-year-old girl infatuated with David Bowie. And you're like, okay, so how is this not creepy? I, but it, it isn't. I can, I can tell you how it's not creepy for me. The touch is so light with those elements. And it, everything is surrounded by Muppets. Yeah. So every time there's a hint that things might possibly be getting a little bit creepy, we take a step back and we have a song and dance number. And that really, really helps. It mm. dissipates a lot of that... Um, what could potentially become uh, a very tense path to go down. And the film never leers at Sarah. It's never sort of, hey, lads. It's, no. It never and falls into Michael Bay territory, even slightly. It's so much about her journey and her agency mm. and her power and all the rest of it that I, I think it's... It, it seems to be coming enough from the teenage girl perspective rather than the, hey, teenage girls fancy older men perspective mm. that that doesn't even seem to be there i honestly don't think that that really even entered into um, jim henson's mind that mm. much he doesn't seem to think that you're, way at yeah. all you're probably right it, it definitely it's firmly planted from sarah's perspective and mm. this is clearly a very um romanticized thing but it, you know it could go in that direction but she's still kind of on that edge of where she's still trying to figure it out yeah. herself. Yeah. The other thing that I noticed this time, and it's when I started really thinking about Sarah's internal uh, and external life, is that I think Mackenzie mentioned this first, and it was picked up several times. Sarah, and this is why I want to reserve the right to swear, Sarah is lonely as fuck. This is a girl, like, yeah. you, if you look at the way she behaves... I can't imagine her being popular at school. I can't imagine other girls you know, wanting to crowd around her and go, oh, let's get Sarah. She's a bundle of fun. I can imagine that Sarah, following the divorce, was really spiky with everyone, pushed everyone away, and has wound up effectively LARPing on her own in the park rather than hanging out with other people and connecting with them. I, I can also see there being an element of her concerns because she's had to go through this uh, this breakup and a, a complete shift in her family patterns that she would find it very difficult to relate to what she would consider to be the childish concerns mm. of her friends yeah. um, and, and kind of pull back from them in that sense, even though she is swinging wildly between must be a grown-up, desperately still want to be a child. Mm. 
she, it doesn't seem like she's got anybody that she can really um, verbalise that with or, or explore it in a way that would make her feel connected yeah. to people her own age. And if you look at how uh, things go for her throughout the film, like the, the idea of existing friends in her landscape just aren't there. The, uh, she effectively has to make friends with internal facets of herself in order to kind of start to jump jumpstart these internal connections mm. and, and actually realise the value of connecting with people. Absolutely. Um, just, by the way, show of hands, anybody? <laughs> yep. I've been on the stage since I was 12 years old, so there's a bit of me that can relate a little bit to the theatrical side of Sarah, mm-hmm. and that's kind of where I made my friends. So... I, I would hope for a 14-year-old Sarah that she finds a nice community theater somewhere in her town yes. and she starts making friends that way and can express herself in a more healthy fashion. Mm. Indeed. Yeah, yeah, the only reason I had any friends as a child is because there was one other child my age in the community theater my family was a part of. So, yeah, she's got burning martyr syndrome and she dismisses Toby. It could also be just that Toby is the product of this new marriage that she'd never wanted to happen. So she sort of put all of her resentment into going this horrible thing that's crying and gets all the attention ah she's got sibling itis up the yin yang like her version of taking care of him is to effectively tell him a story that were he able to understand the words and he can't but were he able to would scare the shit out of him which is easy when he's a tiny child mm-hmm. uh, which is you know uh, she, she makes up the uh, the story of the goblins uh, coming to take him away uh, because of this beautiful girl whose stepmother always made her stay home with the baby. Well, this is... I love this bit because it's like um, a a sort of first draft version of her psychological exploration. She is um, creating this hard-done-by, Cinderella-like version of herself. Um, (laughs) And And we've just seen that she's a princess in an ivory tower. really... Uh But she's not forced to stay in the ivory tower like yeah. Rapunzel she's told go out have fun I mean she clearly doesn't relate to the people in her family and that is hard but also she has a you know a pretty good extent of freedom and I kind of sympathize with what the, the stepmother's telling her that they don't ask her to do all that much it's but rich white girl problems she's yeah, she's just, just babysit every once in a while it's yeah. not that hard and also your brother like she says at one point he's being particularly cruel to her. How? He is one. He's a toddler. And also, honey, there's a thunderstorm going on outside. Of course he's afraid. Of course he's going to cry. Like, yeah. what do you want? Yeah. She is a colossal asshole. Yeah. <laughs> Almost irretrievably so. They have to do something really special mm. in just a few minutes to actually to get us back from her. that. But yeah. But, but she's by telling this story. Um, she's focusing on the things that frustrate and hurt her, which awakens the goblins in her own head. <gasps> Create this little pack of little creatures. And and then as it moves, as the story moves into its second phase, it's invoked through. Um, I think a little seeding of guilt. Her mm-hmm. immediate response. It's so fast. As soon as she realizes what she's done. Is to feel bad about it. Yeah. 
Oh, well, yeah. yeah, that's that's the that's the turnabout that allows the rest of the audience to go. Oh, maybe she's not totally irredeemable. Like, yeah, she, yeah she, because she immediately understands. Like, oh yeah, no, I what did I back. just do? He must be so scared. Not in a kind of I demand my brother back, but in a kind of I have been so terrible here, yeah. and now he's gone, and he must I've be so scared. Exactly. And Connolly's delivery on he must be so scared is absolutely heartbreaking. So even mm. if he's even if he's not really gone, even if we view this from the perspective of all of this takes place in. Sarah's head she still feels guilty about the fact that she wished Toby away even for a second yeah. um, and I think the other thing that they, they do um, which makes you realise that she's got these um, very ambivalent feelings doing the push-pull which is what really humanises characters a lot of the time is that there's this heart-stopping moment when she realises she can't hear Toby crying and anybody who's ever cared for a baby Mm. will know that heart-stopping moment Mm -hmm. of shit, are they breathing? Um, what just happened? Yeah, exactly. exactly. Something terrible has just happened. They're yeah. they're like uh, uh, SIDS or something. Mm. Mm. It's it's really this um, this failure to live up to what little responsibility she's given by her stepmother mm. that sets her on this whole journey of trying to figure out how to be an adult and live up to responsibility in general. It's yeah. this failure to care for mm. her brother that sets her on to this whole journey in the mm. first place. And to yeah. accept that she can both take responsibility and still be herself, and those two things are not actually as mutually exclusive as she seems to believe they are at the beginning of the story. And yeah. we have a friend who uh, saw Labyrinth at an early age, and it's scared the bejesus out of her I think she had to stop watching at around this bit because it was just too much and then she saw a bit of it later and then I think the MC Escher section at the end also freaked her out and like she refused to watch it for year after year and we were like it is such a wonderful film I know you love the Muppets please watch it and she eventually did and she was like it's okay but it still scares me I'm like yeah, uh, that, it is the exception that proves the rule that I believe this section is handled impeccably by Henson and company because everything that's scary about it is perfectly mitigated by their behavior of the goblins and the, I suppose, campy malevolence of uh, Jareth. So you've got like, you know, she's like, I wish, and the goblins are all there going, yeah, but rather than like that... <gasps> Like, it's like it punctures the balloon when she's like, Goblin King, Goblin King, wherever you may be, take this child of mine far away from me. And they all go, Ah, where'd you land that rubbish? Doesn't even start with I wish. The voice work and the puppetry on these is so fantastic. Just like the expressiveness of the, the little squeaky one that sounds like Gonzo, that kind of like shaking his shoulders and looking down at the same time. It's hilarious. So even as a kid, if you're scared, you're like, oh, these guys are scary, but like I'm with them at the same time. But I understand why someone would have that reaction. I mean, like there's as soon as Toby stops crying, the rest of that section is shot like a horror film. Oh, yeah. It's dark. She tries the lights. They don't work. She's creeping up on his crib, and there's, like, something weird moving around in it. It's making this weird noise. She pulls the blanket back, and there's nothing there, and there's a flash of lightning. Like, it's a it's a pretty creepy, scary scenario. So I can understand why this would stay with somebody if they watched it as a young child. And yeah, when... there's definitely an age where this is not a movie you like many kids would be able to handle. It's it's a audience is kind of tricky to pin down exactly because a lot of kids would be easily frightened by the the film and it 
as a whole. Mm. I think you have to be of a certain age. Once you're like seven, you should pretty much be able to take most of it on board. I think um, I first saw this when I was eight. Yeah, there you go. I think there's yeah. like a perfect age. And also us eight in the 80s and early 90s um, is slightly different to uh, kids now who, thanks to the past five years, are ridiculously jaded and, uh, and you know, would just look on this as baby stuff. But um, it is shot very deliberately uh, to make kids uneasy. And then it relieves that uneasiness by having things like when, when uh, all the goblins go... Around the room, and then bounce back under the covers and into drawers when Sarah turns around. Like <laughs> that, as a gag, is is absolutely timeless. They even do it at the end of Guardians of the Galaxy every time. Um, uh, like you know, when kids are trying to get over the death of Groot, and then Drax looks at Baby Groot, and he stops dancing, and then he looks back again, and it's it's just that that mm-hmm. us being in on that. Effectively, it's upstaging Sarah. Um, in a very theatrical gag, but it it works in a way of of just relieving that tension. Mm, yeah, and this is the part of the movie where it feels like it could most veer off into the territory of other eighties like questionably children's movies, like mm. Joe Dante yes. Gremlin style things, mm. where it's like if it wanted to, it could be horribly violent and like insanely scary from this point onwards. Yeah. But it goes a different path. And Sarah has to kill the uh, uh, the goblins with blenders and microwaves. <laughs> <laughs> that is one option. Yeah, I think the um, the the part where Jareth arrives for me is a big underpinning of. Um, one of the main themes throughout the the story, which is that of distraction and temptation leading you away from the path that you're supposed to take. Mm. And the um, the fact that he is a manifestation of the world that's that you know quite likely to her mind has taken her mother away from her. Um, but he uses that to taunt her, her attempts to get into that world. And I think he refers to it as, um, you know, go back to your books and costumes. He's using that as a way to push her off the path. Um, And he's encouraging her to lose herself in fantasy, even at this very, very early stage. And there's a a key phrase that he uses about the crystal um, in reference to it um, representing her... Um, her dreams and the things that she wants. His specific words are, it's a crystal, nothing more. Exactly. If you turn it this way and look into it, it'll show you your dreams. Precisely. It will show you your dreams, not it will give you your dreams. Yeah, or it won't grant them to you. Exactly. It'll you'll just show you. You'll just achieve them. anything, you'll just be able to. The way that Narcissus just watched just his own watched reflection. himself in the pool, yeah, mm. until he died. Um, and and that's at that point, that's what he's trying to get her to do is to let go of the real world, which is what Toby represents, the, the reality of becoming an adult and taking on adult responsibilities. Go back to your room. Play with your mm-hmm. toys. And there's a huge question mark over what Jareth actually wants from her throughout this story. It's mm. constantly changing. And I think that in part, if you start to think of Jareth as being um, a, a facet of her... Um, as as being sort of the um, the gateway to adulthood, but not adulthood itself, because she hasn't gone through the door yet, so she doesn't actually know what's on the other side of it. He is actually just this kind of one-dimensional creature that represents something that at the moment is too big for her. But he's... I, I mean, also, but even... <laughs> Ah, uh, God. So I was uh, a couple of things stood out to me in this in this. Per- I mean, 
first of all, it has to be said that he looks absolutely fabulous. Oh yeah, he magnificent, looks friggin' amazing. And and the thing that he's like, he's holding out this crystal and stuff, and he's got like a snake at one point. I'm like, this is. Eve in the garden being tempted by the forbidden fruit. Mm-hmm. Like this is essentially what it is. I don't know if an owl is a typical symbol that's used to represent the devil as much as like a snake or a serpent or a goat or something like that. But this is essentially what's happening. She's standing like in the in the garden. She's being offered the the forbidden fruit of knowledge and he's telling her, hey, you know, it's it's gonna be nice and safe and warm. Don't you want it? And this is her moment to either take it or not. And she keeps refusing him because she absolutely absolutely has to get Toby back. She knows that this ultimately has to be what happens. Um, so I I kind of liked that little and and there are more things that come up later in the film that kind of harken back to it. But this was something that stood out a lot when I rewatched it last night. It was like, oh my God, he's, he is the devil coming in the form of a serpent and offering her the, the apple. Like, oh my gosh. Well, the, he's, if, he's, if he's giving her this crystal and eventually it will turn into a peach, it's not um, an apple, but it's, it's a fruit of a kind. And also the, mm-hmm. what, what the owl um, has represented in various facets of mythology. Um, first off, it's Athena, which is wisdom and knowledge. Um, uh-huh. And secondly, uh, the owl has been associated with Lilith, who in some stories is a consort of the devil. And was Adam's first wife that was mm. cast out because she was not obedient to Adam, mm. specifically. Mm. <laughs> Jareth is essentially a microcosm of every single potential reaction you can get from the adult world especially from men as a young woman she he is every form of temptation and also every form of danger and that is one of the most interesting things is that as a character he doesn't seem to have any internal motivation because he's not so much a character as he is some kind of a mirror of the dangers and possibilities she is facing as she turns this this major page in her life What's really interesting about Jareth as an antagonist is that he never actively forces her to do anything that she does not ultimately choose to do. Hmm. He opens doors and he points her in directions and he provides distractions, but he can't do anything to her that she does not ultimately choose. And that goes all the way back to taking Toby away. He can't do that until she says she the words her yeah, Dreams you have to actually like say very... the words and wish it into existence. Yeah, to the point where at the very end of the movie, he walks very menacingly towards her and passes right through her. Mm. He can't touch her. He has no power over her. That uh, also mm-hmm. f- um, falls in line with biblical depictions of uh, Lucifer as being, rather than someone who puppeteers things and makes them happen, simply sets them up and lets us make our bad decisions. Yeah. He offers things he offers a choice yeah he is uh, not the puppeteer he is surrounded by puppets 
but he's not the puppeteer. <laughs> also, extra mad props here to Michael Moshen, the uh, contact juggler of these uh, crystal Ooh. balls. It's yeah. abs- it's uh, it was referred to by I think Henson as real magic. Like you know, it, it, yeah, it, he it, said it the was the closest thing he had ever seen to real magic yeah. in real life. And it's it's just you, you know beautiful fluid that. handling of mm. these crystal balls, but it just it's hypnotic and it, it uh, he not a, originally it was going to be that it was just going to be close ups on Michael's hands, but they managed to get him to sort of like put his hands up through Bowie's outfit to sort of you know look like his hands. So it's a double magic trick going on at the same time and and it's uh it, it kind of like extra sells that this character is someone serpentine and untrustworthy but at the same time beguiling he had to basically relearn his own craft because he had to do it without watching his hands yeah mm-hmm. he was doing it behind bowie the magic trick of that is just pure determination and craftsmanship and if you know that it's just all the more impressive to watch. And any scene where those balls are involved, it took like 300 takes every time. <laughs> There's a very mm-hmm. endearing anecdote uh, from the, the uh, bonus features on the Blu-ray we have where they show a scene where he's doing this trick and it took them just dozens and dozens of takes and Bowie is just sitting there smiling and laughing every time one of these balls. <laughs> yeah, he dro- just laughs. At it. He just he keeps dropping it and he dropping it. He's he like, oh my god, I just want to get one right and he just keeps <laughs> laughing. <laughs> it's especially funny because he keeps saying, I've got a better idea and then throwing a crystal ball halfway across a room. I've got a much better idea. Clunk. Whoops. <laughs> You're him, aren't you? You're the Goblin King. My brother back, please, if it's all the same. What's said is said. But I didn't mean it. Oh, you didn't. Please, where is he? You know very well where he is. Please bring him back, please. Sarah, go back to your room. Play with your toys and your costumes. Forget about the baby. I've brought you a gift. What is it? It's a crystal. Nothing more. But if you turn it this way, look into it. It'll show you your dreams. But this is not a gift for an ordinary girl who takes care of a screaming baby. Do you want it? Then forget the baby. that I don't appreciate what you're trying to do for me, but I want my brother back. He must be so scared. Sarah. Don't defy me. You're no match for me, Sarah. But I have to have my brother back. He's there, in my castle. Do you still want to look for him? Is that the castle beyond the Goblin City? Turn back, Sarah. Turn back before it's too late. I can't. Don't you understand that I can't? What a pity. It doesn't look that far. It's further than you think. Time is short.
You have 13 hours in which to solve the labyrinth before your baby brother becomes one of us forever. Such a pity. Okay, so then we actually segue, like, finally, after 45 minutes of this podcast, to the labyrinth, <laughs> where we are shown it by with this great sweep of a hand, again, like Lucifer on the mountaintop with Jesus, uh, pointing to this vast, beautiful, intricate labyrinth. And one of the things I, I extra noticed this time, watching it on our new OLED TV, is how friggin' sparkly all those little dots and sparkles are throughout this whole film. It, it's something you don't, you definitely don't see much now. Like it, it was sort of there, here and there in the eighties. But I'm trying to imagine a version of Labyrinth without the sparkles and the bits and the tiny gemstones and set in everything. They bedazzled the film, but it doesn't look cheesy. It it looks like everything's glistening and alive with magic, but just sort of like catching the light in just the right way. It is fascinating to look at every frame of this film. I love it. Horrible. No, I ain't. I'm Hoggle. Who are you? Sarah. That's what I thought. <laughs> uh, the first taste of the unhelpful and the unexpected. So, you know, uh, Sarah meets fairies and goes, oh, sweet fairies. And then they bite her. And it's like, oh, okay, so maybe, maybe, you know, shows what you know. You know, Hoggle starts off as this sort of truculent child man who's, uh, you know, who's lonely and grumpy. And, you know, I realize this time represents Sarah you know, and and at how she sees herself around other people, and you know, I probably don't get friends because I'm just this level of self invested and um, dismissive of people, which is what Hoggle is. Well, if I'm yeah. I'm looking at the all the characters as being um, elements of Sarah, as if you were exploring it as a dream, mm. and Hoggle is the uh, if you consider what her actions are immediately preceding her meeting Hoggle, he's the greedy, selfish, not seeing anyone else's perspective side of her. Mm. Um, And he's effectively polluting the entryway to her psyche. He's peeing peeing (laughs) on the doorstep to her brain. Um, (laughs) And he he also provides a really essential... um, starting point for this because A, he's killing the fairies which are her illusions Mm -hmm. and and her childhood illusions are all being shattered at this point Mm -hmm. and B, he gets her into the labyrinth he um, gives her the the two key pieces of information there's the door and don't take anything for granted and ultimately it's that that selfish sequence of actions and her realisation that that is a part of her that catapults her into the labyrinth in the first place Mm. He specifically says, not if you ask the right questions, which she doesn't do with the caterpillar. No. The caterpillar is the opposite of Hoggle, very warm, very accommodating. Come inside and have a nice cup of tea. And uh, effectively gives her the wrong help mm. because she says, do you know how to get through this labyrinth? He, and he says, no, I'm just a worm. She doesn't say, do you know how to get to that castle? Mm. But that, I mean, I'm going to come back to that. Don't ask, uh, you're not asking the right questions later because you can actually pick out the points where that progresses and mm-hmm. she learns that lesson by the end. The whole process of exploring your internal 
thought processes and, and um, going through your own psyche is very rarely something that people do um, out of delight. They, most of the time they will only start doing this because something's gone wrong and that's yeah. why um, freaking, Hoggle yeah. needs to be this sort of slightly unpleasant creature mm. to actually get her into it. Well, more than just her greed and her selfishness, though, he's also definitely a reflection of her her fear, of her her own internal reluctance to be moving forward, of her cynicism, of her, well, if I just stay put and I don't do anything, then nothing can hurt me. Mm. This all that you put up to protect yourself often, and he breaks down that breaks down over the course of the movie and so she's accepting some of that vulnerability of even the hardest parts of herself did i call the worm the caterpillar earlier i think i did that's that's alice in wonderland obviously it's it's a worm he literally says i'm just a worm but uh he's got a little (laughs) he's got a little scarf on uh, which uh, is very impractical because it, it's so long that it would drag along while he's uh, um, crawling. But he also says, "Come inside and have a nice cup of tea." And uh, for, only for the f- like, obviously, it's funny when you're a kid. And you're like, "Oh, how could she get in there?" But I thought, how could even worms drink a cup of tea? It has a little picky uppy bit to the handle. <laughs> like, how is that even happening in his head? Uh, you were going to say about. Though. I think you were about uh, to say something about Alice in Wonderland. I was going to say that this movie, this whole story, is mm. definitely of a type. Oh, as, yeah. That, as opposed to the traditional hero's journey, young female protagonists often get this swept into a fantastical world that comes of a type of Alice in Wonderland and The Wizard of Oz and later Spirited Away. Mm. This kind of alternate take where they don't have any like control in the initial actions but they have to face the world regardless whereas mm. most male hero journeys start with a i want to go and, and do the thing and it's not so much about getting a sword and a power fantasy of becoming a supreme warrior it's uh it's being thrown mm-hmm. into a world that is fantastical and having to yeah. reconcile that with the normal and to be able to take that home <laughs> mm. She ends up going through this false wall and her instinct was to go to the left because that's the direction she ran in. And then the caterpillar points her in the other direction. Just did it again. And then the worm points her to the right. But if she carried on going left, she'd have gone to the castle. And I realised that, uh, that again while watching it today. Um, also, tiny little bit here. It's the process of collapsing on the floor and being offered a rest and a cup of tea yeah. that allows her to see the details she hadn't seen so yeah. far. She's just running, barreling along, sure that she can get to the end of this. I mean, it's an amazingly done long, straight corridor. It, it literally looks like it goes on forever. If you uh, watch the making of stuff, they had one of those V-shaped end caps for the set which through forced perspective makes us feel like there's a pathway leading off into the far far distance and from a design perspective they very specifically wanted it to look like a Mm. garden wall um, because then you've got this whole sort of sense of the whole thing being a garden you've got the garden of eden Mm. um, metaphor and also uh, the phrase being led up the garden path comes in and it, it does feel like, uh, you know, when you're a kid and you're sort of exploring the various recesses of uh, of your garden or a grandmother's garden and just sort of like finding out, oh, there's a fence here. Oh, I wonder what's behind that mm. and stuff like that. And oh, here's a coal bunker. That would make a nice playhouse. Yes. No. <laughs> 
and, and yeah, just that, that uh, idea of exploration and, and, and going beyond, like, you know, starting to actually make bold steps. Uh, cut to Magic Dance, which is uh, Bowie having fun with the Muppets. And here he looks like a movie star on Sesame Street. Some of the really, really good ones, like Mark Hamill or Tom Hiddleston did really well mm. with this with Cookie Monster, just handle Muppets fantastically. And they can just, they, they, they keep their dignity, but they kind of enter into the fun spirit of it. And Bowie absolutely does that here. He's like Lord of the Manor with these goblins. Well, but at the same time, he never feels like he's like, oh, this is just silly. Like he's he's really just embraced the whole thing. He looks like he's having a blast the yeah. whole time. In Magic Dance, the uh, the thing I noticed more recently, it certainly wasn't this time, uh, but it's in terms of uh, Jareth's costume. First off, he's got like this little sort of cane, which is also also seems like a microphone. So he's got kind of the rock star thing going on. But I also noticed his sleeves. They're all kind of like dangly, sort of like dangle down, thin white juke again. But you can almost not exactly make out where his arms are in the sleeves. They kind of get lost. And he's got these little black gloves on. And it's almost like he's moving his arms very intentionally like Kermit. Like he's like sort of, a, I'm a Muppet too. And with this giant <laughs> mop of hair on top of his head, he's kind of like the ultimate Muppet. Well, and I mean that as a compliment. The, if you fold that into the whole him being a king of the goblins, but not really 100% a goblin himself, apparently Bowie's interpretation of uh, Jareth's role was that he was king of the goblins under a kind of duress. He didn't really want to be. It was a, a role that he'd been drafted into. And I wonder if the implication is intended to be that Jareth was snatched himself. Once mm. upon a time, he was a baby in the real world, kind of Peter Pan-like, and he got taken and brought to the goblin city and then became the king. And particularly when later on he starts saying um, of Toby... Um, he, I, I think I'll call him Jareth and he's got my eyes mm. he is trying to create a little replica of himself maybe to take sure. over the role from him he needs an heir to yeah. his kingdom Yeah, he does have a life of his own if you, in, if you look at him through Sarah's eyes because she believes he's real mm. to her he's this mysterious force so she could absolutely believe that there's more to him which would give him more motivation throughout the film you remind me of the babe. Babe with the power. Power of voodoo. You do. Remind me of the babe. What? A goblin babe. <laughs> well. Ha 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 
something to be said for the uh, act of flinging Toby into the air and then letting this arm flapping little dummy come sailing back down only to be caught by Bowie. As soon as you're old enough to know this is a movie you know they didn't really throw that baby but it's alarming and fun at the same time. It's a way of illustrating Toby isn't safe but that's a lot less scary a prospect than it could be. The doorkeepers <laughs> and the ones who must always tell the truth and always lie. And Lyra, this time around, pointed out that, no, that's the dead end behind you. The blue one says that, and he's the one who always tells the truth. So he gave it away before Sarah even stepped up to the plate. Mm. I noticed that this time, <laughs> if you're paying attention. Uh, I also pointed out, you could just say to the one on the right, so uh, are you the blue guy? And at which point he'd go, uh, yes, in which case you're the one who always tells the truth. Okay. They never actually impose on her. You can only ask us one question. They also never tell her that you can't just ask both of them to open the doors at the same time. Like, could you just open both of them so I can see what each one leads to? Also, the the thing, though, is that at this point she hasn't figured out how to be terribly clever. She thinks she has, but mm. she's not there yet. Yeah, she's, she hasn't really figured out the rules. Yeah, she's intellectually clever. She can work out the riddle, but she is not yet wise. And um, she misses things like uh, the one who says these two doors are the only way out of here is the liar. Mm. Mm. Very true. Mm-hmm. And um, ultimately, like this is coming out of Sarah because she's read enough stories that require you to answer. Answer me these riddles three. And so she sets herself up this ridiculous conundrum and still fails. <laughs> because this is when you're a teenager, you can fuck up even if you've basically made the right decision. Or at least the realization that that's what you've done sets in when you're a little bit older than a child. Which ties up with the idea that life isn't fair. And that then goes on into later life where you kind of realise to yourself, oh, hey, you know what? I didn't make the wrong decision and everything went wrong anyway. Also, these are the first obvious, although there are a few before this, um, manifestation of the repeated theme of binary decisions that goes throughout the whole thing. Um, It's often represented throughout by two doors or two directions Mm. or an in or out or a stay or go. Or an up or down. Or an up or down, exactly, yes. So she's got two doors at the entrance. She chose down. Hoggle gives her a choice of left or right. The worm gives her a choice of in or out. She's got the two playing card doors, the helping hands up or down, help Ludo run away, two doors with the knockers. It just keeps coming over and over and Mm. over again that, that things can be simplified down to two choices. And a lot of the time when you are young and looking at the world that way, Mm. it does feel like you can simplify things down to, to two options. 
options. And also, when you're older and you're feeling incredibly overwhelmed, it can be immensely helpful to simplify things mm. to two options. Mm. Yeah, it can help to kind of narrow things down. But she hasn't learned how to kind of think fourth dimensionally yet. Mm. So she's that's all she can see. That's all the only options she sees in front of her. She hasn't conceived of the fact that there might be a third or a fourth or a fifth option. Mm. And her resourcefulness gets thwarted in other ways as well. She comes up with the idea for marking the tiles with the lipstick, yep. and the little brownies come along and move everything. Honestly, like if one of them had turned around and had been ruled from Willow, I'd have yeah. been like, "Oh, that makes They're sense." Totally brownies. Yeah. That <laughs> way. Um, well, first off, she says, "This is a piece of cake," which is one of three times that that gets said, and immediately is followed by absolute calamity. She says it here, then she says it to Jareth, almost challenging him to make things harder. And then at the end, Hoggle says it. Ah, piece of cake. And then all the goblins jump out to challenge them. It's uh, it's that kind of, you know, maybe learn from your hubris. And she does. If anything, Hoggle has got over his fear. And we're reminded that sometimes fear is justified. At least when apprehension is translated into readiness. But uh, yeah, then, then she meets the helping hands who are ridiculously unhelpful because they don't tell her what's up or down. They just tell her up or down. <laughs> and she doesn't think to ask. She just chooses blindly because she seems to believe that she has to make these decisions without considering them. She just has to run forward. And by the end, she does start considering things before doing anything. And she says, since I'm pointed that way. So if they turned her upside down and she was facing downwards, would she be pointed up? Hmm. Nope. <laughs> it's crazy nope. logic. It is. The Shaft of Hands is such a cool set piece though oh, like yeah. the way that they made this thing is just absolutely fascinating if you do you know i think the um the inside the labyrinth some of the behind the scenes stuff is readily available on youtube it doesn't look great but you can still mm. kind of get a lot of the pieces so if you have interest in seeing how that was put together definitely watch that but it really is amazing all of the time and effort and imagination that went into not just making the hands themselves but the puppeteers coming up with all the different ways to make faces and to make them talk and the different voices it's it's really incredible and the latex the sheer overwhelming amount of latex so much foam latex oh my god what yeah, there's so much creativity to it too just in the fact that they had to have two performers operating each face not mm. even just because of the number of hands they needed but because one person can't put their hands together in a way that makes two convincing eyes. It has to be two different people's hands. Yeah, what the faces in this, the hand faces in this, end up reminding me of in the later projects is the uh, spiders in the Dark Crystal Age of Resistance and how they form together to make these very creepy mouths. Uh, yeah. And both of them yes. are deeply yeah. upsetting to me. <laughs> exactly. Very upsetting. I'm glad I didn't see this when I was any younger than I was because those hands would have messed me up. I was already kind of weird about hands. I saw but one it... still from Hands Labyrinth as a child and it haunted me for years. <laughs> Thanks, Doug Jones. That's that's understandable. But even still, you know, like 
like we were saying before, the the comedy and the way they deliver where they're like, oh, we're helping hands, and they kind of add a little bit of levity to it. It breaks a little bit of the tension where this could have been a very scary situation, but they do seem to be genuinely wanting to help her, and they do kind of have a sense of humor about it. Hmm. It does feel like this sense, though, that I can't help but read into it a little bit, that as a young woman hands groping all, all all over you as you fall down a pit feels like very loaded imagery. Of, oh, she's right. maybe reached the point where even if she doesn't fully understand what's going on, she has seen how older men start reacting to Yeah, her. this is off-putting. Got it. Then they did extremely well not to make this uh, this scene in and of itself sleazy. It's just the the surrounding environs regarding the imagery that uh, that can definitely be read as uh, unpleasant, mm. especially yeah, as they're all sort of like powdery and horrible and what as well the the hands. Yes, and there was an almost insectoid look to a couple of the uh, the creatures that she chows down. Ah, that one, it's this like really mm-hmm. like <laughs> there's like they they I think if it had gone on for any longer, it would have started to become quite horrible. Mm-hmm. But uh, but yeah, they 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 get her down into the oubliette, and there's more false help from Hoggle who lusts after false jewellery. Now, she's like plastic, and he doesn't even know what plastic is. Uh, so, like, already this is part of her mind saying, you know what, your fixation on plastic is a little bit like this. Well, he's, again, if, if we're looking at him as a manifestation of her self-centeredness, ultimately, um, the thing to remember about that is it is a survival mechanism. Mm. It is there to protect you. Um, it's it's when it becomes overriding and um, and you let it drive that it's a it's a problem. As are the false alarms. The for the path you will face exactly. will lead to and certain destruction. That's her anxiety. Yeah, and it's Hoggle who knows what that is. And I and I, I broke her team down into um, basic emotions inside out style. Mm. And ultimately, Hoggle is a combination of fear and disgust, hence his whole um, terror of the, the bog of eternal stench, mm. um, which is like... Um, a, a, so revulsion. Then. Yeah, well, an emotion that's very closely linked to disgust is shame. Yeah. And the bog of eternal stench seems to me to be a, um, a an idea of shame that sticks to you and you, you can't get rid of um, once it's been imparted. Um, but yeah, Hoggle is kind of... He's fearful, he... Wants Wants to always hang back or run away all the time, um, and he's. B- but again, those are things which, in certain circumstances, and if used appropriately, will save you. If if there's potential for you to um, to you know run into something, not thinking about mm. it, which will come later. All is good out here. Mm. You can see why we took this long to do Labyrinth. It's so friggin' dense. There's so much stuff to to unpick here. Um, the nightmare of the cleaners we don't have to dwell on it for too long but just the imagery of it you're in a darkened corridor of stone and this like like perfectly spherical thing covered in blades is rattling its way towards you there's literally nowhere to escape except down the tunnel and then you come to a locked barred gate that is a nightmare right there this is the most effective tension break for me is when they get through the wall mm. and you see the cleaners pass. It's just two guys on like a weird bike. Yeah, yeah and it's two just guys just pedaling away. Break. It's like a Victorian contraption that probably won't work for very long. 
Yeah. And it's pretty cool how Jarrah kind of takes the crystal, throws it down this dark corridor, and Mm. it just very seamlessly turns into one of the blades. It's a really, really nice effect that looks really good even now, still. What have we here? Uh, uh, nothing. 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 Uh, nothing. Tra la la. Your Majesty. What a nice surprise. Hello, Hedgeward. Hogwart. Hoggle. Hoggle. Can it be that you're helping this girl? Helping? In what sense? In the sense that you're leading her towards the castle. No, no. I was taken back to the beginning, Your Majesty. What? I told her I was going to help her solve the labyrinth. A little trickery on my part. (laughs) But actually... What is that plastic thing round your wrist? Oh. Oh, this. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. Where did this come from? Figgle. Hoggle. Yes, if I thought for one second that you were betraying me, I'd be forced to suspend you headfirst in the bog of eternal stench. No, your majesty. Not the eternal stench. Oh, yes, Hoggle. And you, Zara. How are you enjoying my labyrinths? It's a piece of cake. Oh, really? Then how about upping the stakes, hmm? It's not fair. You say that so often. I wonder what your basis for comparison is. So the labyrinth's a piece of cake, is it? Well, let's see how you deal with this little slice. Uh, we seem to have jumped and skipped over it talking about the nightmare, but this is probably the most pronounced, prominent moment when you can most definitely see the perfect outline of David Bowie's <laughs> enormous cock through his trousers, his very tight <laughs> elephant grey pants. Oh, oh those, those are things. You had to lower the tone, didn't you? It's oh. what everyone remembers. <laughs> I have seen these leggings in person. They are not quite as captivating without the person inside of them, but it was still a very honorable yeah. I, I did kind of notice this time, everybody goes on about how tight they are. They're not actually that tight. They are a little, you know, they're loose around the hip. It's not the pants, it's him. <laughs> yeah. 100% I pure Bowie. I this movie as a child. Mm-hmm. So when Hoggle's pre- like clinging onto his leg and going, no, master, not the eternal. Don't look up, Hoggle. <laughs> he looked you may up. have started this movie as a child, but you ended it as a woman. Oh, <laughs> Indeed. Yeah. So, I mean... This is a coming-of-age story, and it was a bit of a coming-of-age thing for me as well, watching it, so... <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, like, it's... It, again, they don't make it sleazy, but it's definitely there, and it feels... Somewhat intentional. Like, if they'd looked at Bowie in, in that costume for costume tryouts and gone, uh, there's, there's, there's this thing going on, like, could, they would change the material of the pants or give him a giant cricket well, no, box they, to hide it behind. They said they did get in a little bit of trouble. Somebody, somewhere along the line, whether it was a producer or a designer or what, somebody objected and they were like, nope, we're having it. Okay. Uh, uh, Jim, hey, uh, uh, Jim, just uh, a word here. Uh, can I can I talk to you in the bathroom? Are you for doing a George here? Lucas? Hey, uh, uh, Jim, Jim, I love you, buddy. I love all your work. You know I love Frank, but you know uh, you can't you can't with these cross shots. I just I can't. I can't remember my movie, Jim. You got you got to take them out. I'm sorry. 
Could you maybe add CGI to smooth it over nowadays? Don't give him ideas. Don't do it, George. And then some grip in the background on set is like, dude, light it this way. Oh my God, that's perfect. (laughs) Leave it in, leave it in. <laughs> no, I, I think it is uh, it is fairly intentional, and I think it comes back to a scene later, um, which is the the ballroom scene. Mm-hmm. I think we can get into that later on. Uh, but there is this sense of kind of the 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 looming specter of like sexuality just is in this movie intentionally, and it is a part of the whole journey that the character is going through. Not only a a looming specter, Uh but a coiled serpent. (laughs) And he throws it at her, too. (laughs) Yeah. Anyway, moving forwards, luckily it turns into a goblin and goes... This is, so what we have coming up here is um, a, the first example of Sarah learning a lesson really well mm-hmm. and, and really clou- uh, really clearly. Thank you for so raising the tone. She, <laughs> so she has that interaction with Jareth where she's like, it's not fair. You say that so often, I wonder what your basis, basis for comparison, comparison is. is. Oh, I love that line. And almost immediately after that, Hoggle says it's not fair. It's not she fair. She has to take the the bracelet away from him, and she said, "No, it's not." But that's, but that's the, way the way it is, is. And, and it seems to dawn on her. Wonderful like, moment of realization. Oh my goodness! Yes, of course. Life is ridiculously unfair. Yeah. I get it this now. It's not fair. And that is another thing that really endears Sarah to me because it it indicates that she is processing as she goes. She does not just blunder through the labyrinth, never learning anything, mm. and mysteriously and miraculously happening upon the right path. She is actually taking things in, processing them, and then drawing new conclusions from the new information that she's got. After the terrible example of Hoggle being a bad friend to her, he runs away the the first sign of danger. Um, Actually, not the first sign of danger, as soon as there is a place to run to, because he'd have run away to the left or right uh, when the cleaners first turned up. But, um, yeah, she then goes out of her way to become friends with Ludo and you know she's learning things aren't exactly she's what they seem she's starting to look and, through way, you know she's yeah. she's using her powers of observation to go okay so he actually saw me called for the rocks and I used these tools to free him and now he is so he's now my responsibility I'm going to make friends with this big scary beast mm. Um, and also, importantly, Hoggle has just run away. Her fear has just left her. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah. she's like, I'm going to be a better friend than that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And he does that right. thing as well. He says Hoggle takes care of himself like everyone. Hoggle is his, Hoggle's friend. His, self, <laughs> his self-interest is doing that thing where people want to believe that that's the standard because that's the only way that they can justify them. That everyone's so as lousy as them. Yeah. yeah. And tracking back to... Immediately after they get out of the oubliette and the tunnels mm. there, the proof that she's learning is not just exhibited in her willingness to consider that things are unfair, but she starts asking the right questions mm-hmm. when she approaches the old man with the bird hat, which mm. is possibly one of my favorite characters, just because I like the bird hat a lot and his very sassy attitude. This guy used to crack me up so much. And he still kind of does. He he seems like he's something straight out of a Monty Python sketch. Mm. There's, yeah. a, there's a little of the old hat guy and the hat in Merlane and the Nag, actually, now that we think about it. And, uh, yeah. yeah. That's you and I, Maya. Um, oh, I'll keep that in mind next time. I'm <laughs> so that stimulating character. being your, your hops. <laughs> <laughs> Will you listen to 
she has started to learn that things are not always as they seem because when they come up against this barred gate rather than going oh shit it's just that the only way through is barred she turns to the right and goes up against what appears to be just a solid brick wall and has worked out that there is kind of an edge to it and starts to push against it as a last ditch attempt to rather than push through seemingly their only place of escape to find a new way. Mm. So she's already learning that. She's exploring in more directions Mm. than the obvious ones. And then there's that magnificent visual magic trick of them crawling out of a pot which has, which is suspended on a little table so that they appear to be, you know, there's like a portal in there. So it's awesome. Um, Mackenzie, I get the feeling that you wanted to say something more about the question asking and that was one of the points I really wanted to make. So go on. Well, yes, she has been asking the questions that she thinks are right earlier or not thinking too hard about what are the right questions to ask, get the answers that she's actually looking for. Mm. And by the time she gets to this old man with the bird hat, she has finally figured out that you don't ask for things in the polite way necessarily. You ask for things that will get you the answers you want or that make sense in this world and this is the first example of her really figuring out what that is and how to move forward with it Mm, yeah she she changes tack mid-sentence she actually says can you tell me that is i need to get to the goblin castle Mm. she has to stop go back rephrase if she'd asked the worm that exactly and and the just go left one of the the key elements of this progress is that she's learning that she's got to state her intention clearly before she asks and again so she's becoming a better communicator exactly and when you're going into um sort of self-analysis and self-exploration and trying to work out how to overcome the things that you do automatically you have have to stop, breathe, ask the question, what am I doing? Why am I doing this? Be clear about your intentions. And it makes those things so much easier to handle. And this is what she's learning now. And then later on, when she asks somebody else, um, I'm just scrolling through my notes because I can't off the top of my head remember who it was. Um, But she asks somebody else about the way through and she goes straight to the format of, I need to get here. She asks Ludo how to get to the castle as well. Yeah. And Ludo doesn't know. He's this simple, primal bag of emotions. Like, there's no complications to Ludo. He's got loneliness in there, same as Hoggle, and confusion and unrequited affection and a connection to the earth. He kind of reminds me of Merlin as well. He's got, like, a, those big dog rabbit ears of his. So she immediately, you know, oh, you seem like such a nice beast. She's, uh, you know, he's only very briefly like this, this, this big savage yeti thing, and I think the fact that he's being tormented by mm. the goblins. Yeah. Well, this helps. is a, this is a classic thorn in the poor beast rescue. Yeah, um, and the the element of Sarah that I feel like he represents is this defensive hurt needing nurturing and compassion mm. side of her um, and she ultimately by by showing that compassion uh, which ultimately when you look at it from the outside is going to end up being self-compassion she uh, neutralizes mm. what appears to be a threat that he presents initially the, mm. the fact that ludo uh, that um, hoggle freaks out and runs away because he sounds angry and dangerous um but from and big the, yeah exactly and from the emotional perspective ludo for me was um sadness and surprise Eyes, mm. which are the emotions huh? that, that drive you to if you if you think of all the basic emotions as being things that push you in a particular direction fear and disgust make you turn away run away 
get you know get go backwards surprise and sadness make you stand still mm-hmm. surprise is about stopping and assessing which ludo does in quite a subtle way frequently he's the one who will look around and see what's going on but also that the, he's also the one who'll tell us when the smell is bad well yes in case we <laughs> already know <laughs> Um, but the the sadness element of it is about kind of that trying to draw compassion, asking for help, asking the rocks for help. This is a thing that Sarah hasn't done through her life is, is I'm going to do this on my own. I'm going to figure this out and mm. not stopping breathing, asking people for support, which yeah. is the, the thing that Ludo eventually teaches her. And yeah. what she learns moving forward is how to actually, instead of just approaching Hoggle as something she can barter with as treating him as a friend is going to be much more effective at actually moving forward and uh, we also cut away to a rare instance of uh i mean like we do get quite a bit of jareth on on his own like you know but it seems like jareth talking to hoggle here is unusual because these are effectively two aspects of sarah's psyche uh, kind of negotiating with one another. And Jareth gives this forbidden fruit to Hoggle with a horrendous threat of, I will t- you know, toss you into the bog-, bog of eternal stench unless you do as I say. Mm. And I thought, why is Hoggle so afraid of the bog of eternal stench? And and then it just, it's, it's really simple. Um, he kind of on some level does want to make friends and it's really difficult to make friends if you smell really really bad well like i said if you see it as as shame and the thing that will then stick to you and stop you from making connections with people because you will always feel like you're not good enough because of that shame yeah. and and if you're talking about these as being facets of her herself having a conversation with each other it absolutely works jareth is this uh, lustful vain wanting to be part of the adult world side of her and he's having a direct conversation with the terrified side of her and giving her a really good reason to continue being terrified Mm. if you try to go into this world shame will stick to you Mm. and you'll have to drag that through with you for the rest of your life one of the interesting things that's just brought to mind here is that what jaris seems driven to do is to keep everything in its place to keep Mm. all of these aspects of herself from growing in any way to keep them as extreme forms of whatever they are to begin with they play into hoggle's fear he's trying to keep ludo as bestial as possible with his Mm. goblins torturing him he's trying to keep all of these elements from moving to the point where when he gives sarah the peach he's trying to permanently like freeze her in place with this forgetfulness and this inability to move at all and that seems to be kind of where the tension rises he's hyper controlling and he's presiding over this labyrinth where um like you know he's king shit but at the same time yeah he he doesn't seem to be particularly interested at all in in uh uh, things evolving Mm. and when as he adapts it's because sarah has adapted and he's trying a new tactic yeah well that that's the the kind of he's her if you see him as her shadow side yeah i do and um and that being the uh, the self-destructive or self-defeating element of her, that she's doing all of this work to effectively self-integrate all of these elements um, mm. within her. And he's trying to counter that. No, 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 no. Don't get these elements all integrated. Keep them where they are. Yeah, them. Yeah. Absolutely. All, all he wants, All he wants her to do is to just give up. Oh, my God. And what do the fireys do? They take themselves to pieces. <laughs> 
<laughs> and Sarah, she physically can't do that. She is a whole being, and that—that's kind of this. This is sort of one of the. Um, they the, deconstruct themselves. Yeah, but but this is one of the the really solid messages for her. You are a whole person. No matter what happens, you can't stop being a whole person. Keep doing this work and you will be able to be a more effective whole person. We're barely talking about this on a technical note, but I think it's actually, again, tonally really astute having those goblins that attack Ludo. Rather than just poking him with spears, which would be easy and simple and most directors would have them do, they go. They went out of their way to go something more. These little horrible little fetus creatures with sharp teeth, like clinging onto the end of the spears to bite at him. It's like one extra stage removed just to make it like it's upsetting to children but it's got that bit of fantasy element to it so they're like this is wrong and i can see that it's wrong because these spears aren't even weapons anymore they're just they look like baby birds they're incarnations of of just being mean spirited mm. It's it's very well managed. This whole film, like despite the fact that it, it scared the shit out of our friend, like I said, they, it feels like there are many many measures throughout it just to soften those edges for the kids, and that's. It also them. brings in a little bit of more of that kind of adulthood for women being tied to motherhood angle and the like dark side of that being these terrible bitey little fetuses <laughs> I had not interpreted that way but yeah by a goblin king it's a reading or the only thing that she is taken care of in any level is before this starts is her dog and then the dog comes back later when she's grown a little bit more and is mm. more capable of of responsibility and caring after she's cared for something significantly larger and furrier Ludo Again, I love her uh, uh, melodramatic delivery when she's like, go to the garage, go! Like, you know, she's like, I am the princess, command you. Um, the fireys that we uh, just talked about are these lazy stoner children. And this is not much of a temptation for Sarah. Like, she's a little bewildered by them to begin with. And then she's like, right, this is not really for me anymore. She's already matured to the point where, like, what they're offering her is just to muck about as kids. Like, you know, like I said, that first toy we see from her bedroom is the fiery, which is like a, a just a squashy toy that you'd give to a little child. And their sensibilities are just... You know, do whatever you like and just chill out. Just drop all your stuff. Life is tough. Just give yeah. up. And which is absolute like that. That's actually like somewhere in there is good advice of don't let too, the world get you down too much. Sometimes you just got to like let your load off and just you know take off your head. Like that's that's good advice. But they live with their head taken off, yeah. and they toss them around so much, yeah. and they eat their own eyes. And then they, like, it's it's <laughs> they they take it a couple of steps too far. Yeah. Before I play this piece, one thing I didn't mention during recording and didn't really think about until I listened to We Hate Movies talking Jar Jar Binks. And it was in the back there every time I saw it as a child. But to confront this fact is uncomfortable as an adult. The fireys are coded black. I don't believe in a malicious way at all. I don't think that was in Jim Henson. Even when George Lucas does it, it's out of ignorance. But they sound like Jamaican stoners. And I think worse than that, if you compare them to the crows in Dumbo, at least the crows were supportive and helpful and encouraged Dumbo to fly after feeling sorry for him. The fireys tried to pull Sarah's head off her body because they're insane. 
Now, a lot of people of colour were behind the camera on this production. In battle, puppeteer Kevin Clash, Danny John Jules and Charles Organs, the latter of whom was the choreographer for Magic Dance as well. Bowie retained the Harlem Choir to help him sing underground. But in front of the camera, mainly because most of the cast are Muppets, this is one white-ass film. So if there's going to be another labyrinth at some point, we actively need someone as fantabulous as Janelle Monet front and center to offset and update the mythology. What's going on? Hoggle who rescues her at this point, but the um, what what happens next is there is a clash between her gratitude to Hoggle and Don't kiss uh, me. his mm-hmm. uh, his role as her sort of self-centered self-protectiveness, and that activates Jareth's threat and drops them into the bog of eternal stench. Oh. Mm-hmm. I think it's interesting that the character she meets here seems representative of her previous drive to go forward without any consideration for mm. any of the consequences. Her oh, you mean Sodidimus kind of, here. Sir he is blindly doing the things that he believes he has to without mm. really any thought behind it. And so she is capable of dealing with this now because she has understood that part of herself on some level already. Yeah. But also it's interesting that he exists in a world of shame but is entirely unaware of it. Oh, yes. He's completely oblivious to it. Yeah. He can't smell anything. Yeah. yeah. And he he's, lives he's by no, his I sense of smell. I think he's just nose blind at this point. Like, he's yeah. just he's existed so in this place. Yeah, he's been there for so long that he just doesn't even notice <laughs> it anymore. But this, this again, is sort of... There's things that happen here that are indicative of Sarah's progress. Her solution to... Um, Hoggle's behavior is don't pretend to be so hard. So she's starting to recognize the mm. need for connection to other people. And that there are things that people say, uh, sorry, that people don't say about themselves, yeah, but feel all the same. Absolutely. 
and then Ludo, who was absent throughout the the previous uh, sequence, suddenly reappears simply because she and Hoggle sit down long enough for the elements of herself to come back together again. It's just taking a breather and allowing herself to kind of, Mm. um, you know, re re collect her thoughts, if yeah, you like. To deal with the Ludo narrative dissonance. Indeed. And the and the I, I think <laughs> Mackenzie, you are oh, sorry, I just got that. <laughs> um, the, the encounter with Sididimus, um, the the whole sort of you're not coming through without my permission thing. He's this sort of proud independent side of Sarah who doesn't recognise shame, you're absolutely right, surrounded by it mm. but can't smell it. And he's ridiculously um, self-important, much like Sarah at the absolutely. beginning. Absolutely. And the, the phrase I wrote down about Sididimus is, he doesn't know when to quit, but he also doesn't know when to quit. So that can be a positive thing or it can be a negative thing. Yeah. And um, these uh, this element of, of Sarah I kind of saw as being her, like her anger and her joy, which is can also be pride if you combine those two things together. Mm. And this is the side of her that wants to constantly storm ahead without thinking about things. Just, just do it and then we'll deal with the consequences later. And can't even conceive of the idea that anything might go wrong. So this is her at the beginning when she runs pell-mell down the uh, labyrinth that clearly has no Absolutely. twists, lefts or rights. And this is this is actually a, a facet that I have been battling with for an awful lot of my life. There is, despite the fact that I am now a pushing 42-year-old woman, mm-hmm. there is an aspect of my brain which is a three-year-old hyper-independent little girl who, when you ask her to do something regardless of whether or not it's a good idea, stamps her foot and says, no, I don't want to, without even thinking about it. And and it just kind of, the the Sarah's solution to uh, Didymus's not without my permission, I thought was absolutely brilliant. She just, she slows down, she uses logic, she just asks him and that lowers his guard against that kind of instinctive resistance to her, to her pushing through. When... Ludo's aggression did not help. Exactly, yeah. But it also is a little bit, like, I find it, uh, I think Sir Dynamius is is really adorable. Like, his design is very cute to mm. begin with. Like, he's a little, he looks like a, a little uh, Scotty dog or something like that. But also I find it very endearing that he is a little bit of a coward deep down. Like, he, he thinks that he's he has to, he has to be very showy and he has to make this mm. big thing. Of, he, he overcompensates play, wildly. Yes, he has to overcompensate and play at being very tough and very gallant. But deep down, he is like, oh, my God, I don't I don't actually want to be in this situation. And really, I just kind of want these people to like me and, and be friends with me. And I really want to come with them on their journey. And, like, I just find that so incredibly endearing. And when I was watching it... This time I realized, you know what? This probably explains why I love Papyrus so much from Undertale. <laughs> yeah. This is like you could draw a, a straight line from Sir Didymus mm. to him. Yeah. As the, the character that Sardinimus reminds me the most of is uh, Reepicheep from the Narnia mm. books, where he yes. is this, he's very small, he doesn't have a lot of physical power in and of himself, but he is very intent on 
the the honor and gallantry of just rushing forward into challenges without really considering the consequences. Mm. He's also a bit of a Quixote figure. I was, yeah, a little bit yeah, of a... I've got Don Quixote Fox. Yes. Mm. Yeah. He's very Jack Russell Terrier to me. I know that mm. there's yeah, a lot of different Yeah, he's got super little... The kind yeah, that jumps dog up. syndrome, for sure. Mm. He, he doesn't understand that he's not the size of Ludo on some level. It yeah. just doesn't occur to him. The, the dogs that bark at Indy the most are tiny. Yeah. No, <laughs> tiny dogs are the most aggressive. They've yeah. done some studies on this. Jack Russell Tires are the meanest dogs you can have. They're just <laughs> less dangerous because they're the size of a yeah. football. And chihuahuas. Yeah. Yep. Somebody, we saw a really small dog in the park the other day, and their owner said he doesn't know how small he is. Nice. They just don't. They they get through the Bog of Eternal stench, and Hoggle, hating himself all the time, gives Sarah the peach. Like he does, it is a total movement of fear. He knows this is the wrong thing to do, and I think this is uh, like this would could be translated as Sarah like an aspect of her doing something that she, she now knows is entirely wrong to hurt herself in this case or to, to hurt someone else that she has actually started to care about so she's almost testing herself in her brain at this stage and remember that musical box that I mentioned before that this is the conduit to get her into this crystal bubble that Jared's been playing with the whole time and what you said about locking things in place that uh-huh. is what this musical box is. This is Sarah seeing an aspect of what she idealizes as womanhood to be, which is me in a beautiful dress, locked in place, and everyone can see that I am beautiful and I am among people that are also beautiful, and it's all glamorous and I don't know what to do! And, and that's her vision. You know what point. music box dancers do? They twirl. In place, place. on the spot. And never move. At someone else's command, because you have to wind them up for them to do it. Yeah. I I had one of those music boxes. Mm. Like, it was a jewellery box, and it had a ballerina inside, and when you opened it and wound it up, it was Mm. just spin and spin and spin. I think they were very, very common. Uh, yeah, I think I think most most of the girls, especially if you're of a certain age, everybody had that jewelry box that had the little spinning ballerina in it, and when you open it up, it would start to play when you wound it up. Mm-hmm. And um, for the actual for this masquerade ball, uh, I think um, one of the Henson daughters said that you know it's actually quite nerve wracking if you think about it. If you're a child at a masquerade ball, and I was like. Just, it's nerve-wracking for me at a normal party pre-COVID. Like, you know, yeah. add masquerade and I am freaking the fuck out as a 40-year-old man. Oh, yeah. yeah. You know, and, and one of the things that Intenson uh, even said this himself, like he said that they set up this scene deliberately to make it a more adult situation where it's both attractive and repellent to Sarah. Yeah. Like she knows that she's too young to be in this situation and that she's out of place and it it kind of adds a little bit even though this is kind of her idea of like this is what my womanhood should look like it still adds that layer of innocence and naivety where she doesn't really know what's going on and she's still a child who doesn't really comprehend what's going on around her We've been discussing this whole time how deep this movie is and how many layers it has and this is the scene in the movie that it 
feels most on the surface how intensely psychological the film is and yeah. how much it is going into. There's even the every the element hand. of the set. Yeah, every element of the set dressing and the costumes feels like this vague distortion of a fantasy sequence where the like cracks of of what adulthood can be are showing the like danger implicit in her kind of coming of age and her discovering sexuality are interlaced with all of the typical fantasy elements that at this point have been entirely innocent in her mind. It's coming together in this way that is, although they're in Venetian masks, but all of them are goblins. There's, a ballroom, but there's also this very strange, like, cushion-filled pit that they are lounging in and about. It's just very, it feels like a film that comes, it feels like Eyes Wide Shut, which is mm. not mm-hmm, a comfortable place to be as an adult, let alone as a young woman. And it's clearly not as sexual as that, but it's got this same feeling of, Nothing is as it seems, not in the whimsical way you're used to in the rest of the Labyrinths, but in a way that is intentional and it doesn't want you to know what it actually is. For, if you uh, look at how they filmed the scene in the uh, behind the scenes materials, they put the they mounted the camera in like a trolley and then put a giant like, globular crystal sort of hemisphere in front of it so ev- like this is what creates that distortion and the the, the twisting and yeah there's, there's weird reflections and, and like it's, it's got actually like a crystalline um it's not just a perfectly smooth surface mm. so it's it's twisting everything that sarah's seeing so when you're you're looking through it everything is um dreamlike and and keeps changing in size and in uh distance from her it's also um this this ball and i just realized it's a ball in a, in ball. a ball um but this this ball and it's the a crystal ball is a dark reflection of sarah's bedroom when you go through her room you're seeing all these little elements that will become things in the labyrinth mm. the, some of the masks some of the set dressing um, resembles things that she's come across in the labyrinth so far they mm. have the bird in a box who looks like the bird on the hat of the wise man oh, right. there's somebody's got a mask that looks a little bit like ludo and somebody's got a mask that looks a little bit like hoggle mm. and it almost seems like they're uh, the purpose of this is to paper over the memories that she's had through the labyrinth to make it more dreamlike, so that she's not from yeah. her her previous life and and kind of um, and and take them away from the idea that she's here to search for Toby. It's got this feeling of, but you've always been here. This mm. is this has always been your place. It's a it's a seduction and uh, not not even necessarily a sexual one. Just it's it's one where. Jareth is asking her to be his music box dancer mm. and, uh, you know, saying, like, look at this wonderful version of what you want I can give you yeah. at this stage. It's, it's that yeah. seduction of stay here in place. It's that meeting mm. with the goddess when it starts to become, but you're not leaving to go back out on your quest. Yeah. The purpose of this is meant to be um, a, a rest. Life is a, a series of in-breaths and out-breaths and it's, it's push and pull, mm. but you have to push when it is time to push. But also her mother departed seemingly for the life of the party yeah. and like she you know has glamorous but like it's it's not done like through sarah's eyes as sort of like you know the 
the, the, the reality of it. It's an idealised and quite frightening version mm-hmm. of what her mother's probably going through, which is obviously to attend many Regency parties well, in the 18th century. Yes. Party, party every night, and sooner or later you're going to have to hit the coke. But also the thing that initiated this, the fruit, is the opposite of what uh, the fruit in the Garden of Eden symbolises. The idea of worldly wisdom and actually... Um, losing your innocence it's the opposite of that it's actually closing off lessons you've learned and rather than going out into the world and understanding things more and experiencing pain it's um, embracing blissful ignorance and deliberately imprisoning yourself in that the nectar of yeah, just to jump off what you're what you're both saying too importantly there is a very like it's very fleeting but I love the way the masks are designed in this. Like everything looks absolutely beautiful, mm. but there is one mask design that is very intentionally meant to look like a skull. The it's skull meant guy, to yeah. yes, it's meant to look like death. And he is constantly circling around her. There are points where the the camera will cut to him and he'll just look and he's always looking straight at Sarah, he's always looking straight at the camera. They they placed him and framed him in a way that he is always circling around her, like he's just getting closer and closer and closer. And several shots, he's holding up a clock and pointing at the clock and going, come on, come on. He is just like this consuming forces around her. Like this guy to me is just death. Like if you are going to stay in this place, if you are going to sit here and just be you know, surrounded by all of these things that are keeping you from progressing, you are going to die and you are going to run out of time. Interesting. See, my, my interpretation was actually that he's an incredibly benevolent force. He's warning her, get the fuck out of here. You've only got two hours left to rescue Toby. This is your responsibility. The idea that you can indulge in this endless fantasy and escape death. But ultimately, your responsibilities out in the real world involve embracing that. This is all, Everything always comes back to the ending of the Twilight Saga for me, where they go, fuck you, death, we're going to be young and beautiful forever. It's the opposite of a mature way forwards. Yeah. If you ultimately, if you reject death, you are rejecting life because you're rejecting the concept of change, you're rejecting anything progressing and deteriorating and then renewing itself. You are asking for a world in which everything is glued in place. And that actually, like there's, a, there's a brilliant um, encapsulating uh, microcosm of this in the behind the scenes extras when they're talking about. Um, the uh, the puppetry museum mm-hmm. and and many many of the the models from this and the costumes and stuff ended up in that museum and they were reconstructing some of the foam latex puppets and they said there comes a point where they they start to dry out and crumble and the the process of restoring them locks, locks them, them in, in place. place because if you want something to not deteriorate it can't live it can't move it oh can't en- embody life because mm-hmm. to do yeah. that you have to move and you have to change and that means deterioration you're going to decay yeah that's what but actually one... causes the latex to fall apart is the fact that the puppets are meant to be moved like mm. puppets yeah Kind of held you open and close within your eyes. I'll place the sky 
So we move now to the land of junk, which is uh, where uh, Sarah is uh, ushered back into her room by the junk lady. And it's this deeply unnerving, uh, you mentioned before, Sharon, meeting with the goddess. Um, And originally, uh, um, what she's basically confronting Sarah with here is actually the biggest and bigger temptation. Where the fiery is completely failed, what the junk lady almost succeeds in doing, because Sarah's been thrown not for a loop by this dream, is telling Sarah, all you have to worry about is yourself. Stay in your room, play with your toys. Like, you know, it's, it's what Jareth said, go back to your room, play with your toys. The junk lady gets closer than anyone else, just starting to put these on Sarah and you know it's easy for even a little kid to see what's happening because the junk lady and there's another one or two in the background just illustrating that there are these hoarders who are carrying around all of these trinkets with them it hasn't made them happy they've just obsessively consumed and held on to these things and just they've stacked them on top of their life until they're laden down with them and Sarah does actually entertain the notion of just, you know, maybe I'll pretty myself up and and, and wear this lipstick and just look at myself in the mirror. Which, again, like, this mirror is absolutely key to the film because, like, at the very beginning, you see it's covered in all of these photographs of her mother and, uh, like, her mother and also her father. And it's got fragments of this family that she's left behind. But also it indicates she's been staring into this mirror, asking herself, Who am I? Who am I now? Who was I? And this is the point where she goes, fuck it. I just want to take care of my brother. I want to do this quest. It's scarier to do it, but I'm going to do it. And the whole world comes pouring in on her in a terrifying fashion. I think the vital thing, or one of the vital things here, is that the item she is initially drawn in with, the first temptation of the junk lady, is the bear, is Lancelot, is the thing that she was 
unwilling to the object that even though it didn't she didn't need it anymore she was unwilling to let go of to satisfy toby she wasn't willing to give it to the kid that's what he wanted in the beginning that's why he's crying he's scared and he's dropped his teddy bear he wants a teddy bear yeah and he can't and she's given this as a comfort item and the ability to be to let that go in this sequence to realize that that even if she likes these things or they've had some meaning to her, that doesn't that isn't who she is and that doesn't have to be defining for her moving forward. And in the end she's able to give that bear up and let it move on to the mm. next person who needs it more than her. Especially I hadn't even noticed until you started talking about it, uh, Mackenzie. If you look at the set dressing on Toby's room it's not even his room for a start it's her parents room room. there's some toys but like Sarah came from her room that's a fucking carnival and in her story she says and the baby wanted everything for himself he's got no toys Sarah give him a bear he's got a blanket a stripy hat (laughs) that's it you've got all of them (laughs) and she even took the stripy hat yeah absolutely and it's notable that the bear is named Lancelot that Mm. it's a knight that it's a protecting figure Mm. I know Lancelot has a lot of deeper meaning because of Therian legend but I think here that's the intent even though she has a sedidimus toy that's her Lancelot is Sididimus. Absolutely. And and the, the fact that she goes through that process of, of um, being given Lancelot, again, finding him there when she knew she was looking for him at the beginning of the story, mm. that overwrites the memory of finding Lancelot in Toby's room. Yeah. Um, or in, in, yeah, in, on the floor in Toby's room. And, um, and overwrites the search and, and is a way of disconnecting her from that. And I love what you said there, Mackenzie, about her uh, when she um, has this, this comfort item that she doesn't just let go of it and decide she doesn't need it anymore. She actively gives it to Toby. Mm. She actively hands it on to somebody else. Um, the uh, Lancelot is a, an, obviously an old toy of hers, something yeah. that she's had for a long time. And all of the things that the junk lady is, is hooking onto her, some of them are things that, that are in her room right now. Some of them are things that she's lost, things that she's, um, you know, have, have disappeared out of memory. But this is about all of the... Um, creeping tendrils of her own childhood clutching onto her because she is afraid to leave that cocoon. She has to yeah. let go of this stuff or she's going to be buried in it. Mm. One of the ballroom was this attempt to lure her into this world of, of a, adulthood and you know potential sexuality. This next phase of Jareth's attempt to, to keep her from getting to the center of the labyrinth is tying her to the world of childhood it's bringing all of these Mm. things that she had as a child that she has forgotten or lost it's it's nostalgia it's trying to anchor her to a place that she no longer belongs that she needs to move on from yeah the first thing she says when she gets back into her bedroom is let's go and see if daddy's back that removes the stepmother it removes toby Mm. better to stay in here dear Exactly. Yeah, it's it's all and it's all just a very convenient distraction to keep her from the thing that's really important and the thing that she really needs, which is her brother. Yeah. I mean, you can cuddle Lancelot your entire childhood, but he ain't really going to cuddle you back. Mm. And the uh, it's it's important that she gives Toby that measure of comfort but that ultimately she recognizes that there is a connection between the two of them. Also, like, one odd little thing that the uh, junk lady gives her is, your little toy can! 
candy shop. That is a very temporary toy. Like I, you, you fiddle with that for a for a Boxing Day, and like that that isn't like there's it's a rare child that goes. You know what? This candy shop is the basis of my play from now on. <laughs> Uh, but at the end, the big test comes when she gets handed the uh, music box because this represents this false vision of womanhood that she's latched onto. And she has to literally smash the mirror with it to go, no, this is actually like, you know, you know this is not junk is a challenge. Of, you know, and she has to recognize that this version of adulthood that she's had in her head for so long may as well be garbage. It may as well be just any of these trinkets that she's got on, on top of her. Yeah, it's junk food. It's it's empty calories. It's yeah. a it's a, a superficial version of the real world. And that's emphasised, I think, by the fact that all the examples she has of this real world mm. are theatrical. They are stage versions of what's out there. And it's very comforting that as she pulls herself out of this giant hole, all her friends are now back. Mm-hmm. So, you know, even Hull uh, managed to come back from this... Um, uh, I think does does he turn up um, at the end with the the fighting humongous like he's not there originally. Yeah, it's, mm-hmm. it's Ludo and uh, yeah, he Dismas he comes and, he and comes in when the humongous yeah. comes out of the wall. It's very sweet that she kind of imagines her own dog into this dream as Ambrosius, mm-hmm. the, uh, the the sheepdog, and it's a, a fantastic magic trick they play with him because you'd think he's a muppet the whole time, but there are times when it's like it's the sedidimus puppet bouncing along on a real sheepdog. Well, he's he's effectively, and I think I. I said something about this when we did the Bumblebee show. Um, Ambrosius is probably the closest thing she's got to an animus. Hmm. Um, the idea that there's this... Oh, we're uh, not talking Jareth here. Jareth is her shadow self. Okay. That's like the animus gone wrong. Okay. Um, but the the purpose of the animus is a, it's a support mechanism. Hmm. It's, um, it's, the, it's the soldier who goes out and fights for you. And in this case, um, Merlin becomes the mount for Sididimus that literally carries forward the embodiment of her um, her let's go out and fight <laughs> motivation. Yeah. My loyal steed. Yes, indeed. <laughs> Convenient that sheep does are already just Muppets. They're just basically yeah. This this uh, sheepdog apparently had to have special shoes made for it when they were going through the the bog of eternal stench because the um, the the stuff the liquid that they were walking through they'd put green colouring in it and this this sheepdog was a show dog and it would have taken if its fur had got stained with this green colouring it would have taken two years for it to grow out. So my guess Ooh, is you so the, much put a paw into this the bog of eternal like, stench and you'll have a green. You my dog green. For two years. <laughs> <laughs> so they had to give it these little socks to keep its feet clean. Um, so we can actually hop, skip and jump through this next section because it's mostly just technical uh, wizardry. And it, it's the humongous was this 15 foot uh, tall um, golem that they've got. And it's also significantly it's Hoggle turning up to redeem himself for betraying Sarah, showing some courage and actually doing something really brave. Jumping, like He had to jump off this like 15 foot uh, thing and... You know, him being even uh, smaller than the average human uh, makes that a terrifying amount of sp- space to jump out into. Mm. 
Huge props to short actress Shari Weiser, who was the physical embodiment of Hoggle. She worked out a system with the puppeteers whereby Hoggle had to keep kind of opening his mouth so that she could see out. So every time he goes, it's so that she can get to the wall without bumping into it. And uh, by the end of filming, she'd kind of memorized the sets with her eyes shut so that she could move around them without mishap. Well, they, all, they all have to counter their essential um, self hmm. here. Hoggle has to do something brave. Didymus has to do something stealthy. And uh, Ludo, well, actually, Ludo doesn't really go against his his um, his own self because he just calls the rocks again. Mm. But he, uh, he goes Ludo's against his anger, yeah. rather than just attacking the uh, goblins. Yeah, so. yeah, no, that's true. So then they're in the in the battle sequence next, which is just an excellent example of of Muppet style mm. battle sequences where the tension is still definitely there, but there's not nearly as much fear as there would be because everything is just kind of Muppet. absurd. Yeah. They before wanted to have a silly too, battle, and they had one. Before we get too far into the battle, I just want to point out that uh, w- right after um, Hoggle saves them from Humongous, uh, we get this great moment where Sarah forgives him mm. for uh, giving him, giving her the peach, which in essence is her forgiving herself for treating herself badly. Nice. And it's a, it's a really good... Uh, just way of showing how much she has matured as a person and how she treats herself internally. Also, there's a machine gun goblin. <laughs> and Warwick Davis turns up as the one who, who says, I'm going home, and then runs yes, into his house and gets... stepped on by a load of goblin horses. <laughs> I thought no. I heard his voice. Yeah, he's yep, the one who yeah. goes back inside and, and a bunch of rocks just barrel into his home. They follow him in there. Yeah. There's some really fantastic false perspective stuff that makes this goblin town look a lot bigger than it actually is. Like, if you look up on the castle on top of the hill, when you're a kid, you're like, wow, that massive castle. It's it's false perspective. It's, it's, it's another... Like, it's it's slanting upwards so that it actually is 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 much smaller than it actually it looks. But it feels like they used a lot of this the the rooftop stuff for when they show the roofs of London in uh, Muppets Christmas Carol. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the Goblin Town looks very lived in too. Yeah. Like I I really like how it's designed. It really does feel like these creatures actually inhabit this place. It's it's very very well done. Yeah. Uh, and then that leads us to the uh, MC Escher chamber. And uh, this is, again, that bit that, that proved uh, terrifying to our friend. I think just the idea of not being able to get to an infant um, sibling. And uh, like that's, that's nightmare fuel. Like This whole thing is... Uh, is, a, is a, It has the properties of a dream insofar as a, a bad dream. A dream that's going wrong. When you run in a direction to get something done and then you find that you haven't really moved in the right direction and you're now somewhere else, that is some dream shit right there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I had a dream the other night that I was um, chasing you through a Canadian city mm. and I, you kept disappearing just out of my sight and sending me text messages saying, I'm going past this shop, I'm going past this shop. And I'm frantically Googling them to try and work out what direction you'd gone in. Is this about... It was terrifying. It's a technical logical uh, version of the Escher dream, yeah, obviously. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. I'm, I'm like triangulating wearing... you by, right, now he's outside this baker's, now he's... Was I wearing a little red stripy um, set of overalls? Uh, not that I recall. <laughs> <laughs> what a shame. Hmm. Um, but, uh, yeah, no, okay, so how would we interpret the the song that uh, is playing here and uh, uh, Jareth's lyrics and uh, everything I've done I've done for you 
And it ties up with the, the whole speech he's got uh, next with, the, you know, I've done it all for you. What is this speech about? You really get the sense in this sequence that Jareth is putting every last bit of what power he has mm. to exert in this world out there to try and convince Sarah to either give up or give in to the things that he's offering. This is his last ditch attempt to convince her that he knows better than she does what it is she wants. Mm. As someone who has experienced relationship abuse, Jareth in this scene is the most stereotypical abusive boyfriend I think you could possibly run into where he just, it's just gaslighting her constantly. This idea that what you really want is to not have to make any decisions for yourself and let me do everything for you. And and saying how cruel something... Sarah is to him. Yeah, this idea that you are the bad one for, for trying to stand up for yourself, to try to be the most of yourself you can possibly be. And there is something deeply tempting in the idea of not having to make any of your own decisions, of just being someone's slave, but... Part of growing up is accepting that you have to do this for yourself. You have to find your way through these complicated decisions and you have to claim your own power. You have to do that or you just, it's not good. The alternative is terrible. The I'm, twisting of language as well, where they just fear me, love me, do as I say, and I will be your slave. That's I not what a slave you, is. You say that, but it sounds like you mean the other thing. <laughs> um, yeah. But yeah, the, um, the underpinning of that to me is the, and you're absolutely right, Mackenzie, about that that kind of abusive um, relationship element of it, and, and the, the temptation of just let somebody else make all the decisions for you, especially when you've been in that relationship long enough that they have undermined your belief that you can make those decisions for yourself. Um, that they have oh, made when it you're young so, enough that you never learn. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. That it's it's being made so hard for you to believe that you ever could make those decisions that it is actually a lot easier to just say, okay, that's fine. I will let you do all of this for me. But the 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 bit that underlies that is this sort of um, this this narcissistic element of of Jareth as an element of Sarah herself um, that if he if she doesn't um, give him this fear this love this adoration he will cease to be he's the one of the lines in the song that I find the most fascinating is I can't live within you and generally speaking a, a like a, a love song would say I can't live without you but the point is here that if she is open to the world if she is open to connection with Toby connection with her family being an adult and being part of the everyday world Jareth cannot exist in her psyche mm-hmm. yeah he is going to essentially disappear all of all of this is as her finding her agency and really lashing onto her own power and it starts with the the staircase set it's so disorienting and she really cannot even tell up from down and i find it interesting that toby as a toddler has absolutely no problem navigating this space like he doesn't he doesn't think like he has no concept of up and down. He has no concept of gravity or physics. He can just go wherever he wants to. And in order for Sarah to reach him, she has to take a leap of faith. 
She just has to jump. And of course, because all of this is an illusion, she ends up just kind of falling through it. And that's where she has her conversation with Jareth for the final time and has to remember the words that give her the power. It's like it's like she has to speak a magic spell to to make him go away almost. Mm. But she has to understand it's, when she says you have no power over me. It's with a certainty yeah. as opposed to just you oh, it's you have yeah, no you power have over me. You have to know. It's like yeah. you got to believe in it in order for it to work. Yeah, and and it's it's a case of of recognizing what it means rather than just learning a line in a book. One of the reasons that Toby is not freaked out by the stairs is because he's a toddler. He doesn't recognize that there is any kind of threat. Yeah, there's no script. Exactly. It's that difference between innocence and ignorance you kind of have to go through the process of being scared in order to to come out the other side and understand why you're not scared And there's a very clear symbolism for what Sarah has to get past. I'd forgotten to mention this. During the masquerade ball, a lot of the dancers in there are looking into hand mirrors. They're dancing around looking at themselves. There's this preponderance of Sarah, especially at the beginning, having this massive mirror in front of her. So while she's asking herself, who am I? She's also effectively enacting vanity and making herself up and making herself look beautiful. And ultimately, this just comes down to a difference between self-love and projecting love out to others mm. and making those connections. And ultimately, what Jareth is offering her is just focus on yourself and I will make sure that your life goes great because you only have to worry about one thing under those circumstances. And it's much scarier to say, no, I'm going to worry about other people or I'm going to concern myself with other people because... That, that is a lot less of a simple, straightforward road. You don't just have a, like, it's just me in the mirror, this is the only thing I need to focus on. You have to look out at the rest of the world. And that's a social construct as well, that whole, um, if, you, if you look at what um, uh, Western society has a tendency to push as the thing to do, it's reflect yourself back at you. Look at all these things that we can offer to make you more beautiful, more, sli more slim, more desirable, um, dress better, 
give a better impression to everyone else. It's, it's all this sort of superficial stuff that ultimately is about um, yourself. And it's one of the reasons why we struggle to understand what actually taking care of ourselves is because we've been encouraged not to examine that and certainly not to try and look through the mirror to examine what taking care of each other means vanity is definitely my favorite sin (laughs) kevin so basic self-love there is nothing more dangerous to a society especially one that has a strict i don't know patriarchal power system like a monarchy where there's a king for example then people actually fully understanding their own power their own self and how to connect to and work with others Hmm. because that will bring everything crashing down absolutely and uh, George Lucas, of all people, gave a little speech about what Jareth could uh, represent. And uh, he said that it was uh, alluded to societal pressure and, and what a young girl is supposed to be like. And it was like, wow, I, I almost can't believe that Lucas himself uh, was that observant about the pressures put on a young woman. Because, you know, from, from our perspective, it's like, well, the baby's already here. I don't get what the girl's for. He occasionally had his moments yeah. where he would have a breakthrough. The, the particular line that caught my attention was that he said, this is a story about um, a, a young woman entering adulthood on her own terms. And mm. I thought... Good Lord, that is the smartest thing George Lucas yeah. has ever said. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's completely spot on. Like, this is her really owning her own uh, womanhood and doing it, you know, by her own, uh, you know, of her own accord, of her own agency. And it made me realize how much Jareth res- resembles Sarah or a bastardized version of Sarah. He thinks only of himself. He loves playing dress up. He indulges in dreams. He is alone at the top of a land that he controls with a rod of iron. He's her, or at least the shadow side of herself that she needs to banish and reject in order to be a decent functioning adult. And in this sequence, he's a ghost. I think um, Brian Froud uh, said that in the uh, commentary. He's kind of. Uh, when she finally confronts him he's got this wispy sort of white ethereal ephemeral costume with like bones at the back he's become the skeleton of an owl that's kind of what i thought was like this this definitely is kind of uh is is resemblance of his owl form for sure Mm. but he also has a, a a bit of a like, I, I absolutely love this costume. It's really, really fantastic. Oh, yeah. But it definitely calls up a lot of different things. Like, it is meant to be kind of feathery and white like the barn owl, but it's also very angelic. And mm. wouldn't you know, the devil was, the like, the most beautiful creature in heaven until he was cast out of paradise. Yeah. Uh, I think it's also worth um, bearing in mind that the, the process of resolving the shadow aspects of yourself... Um, the the end result and the aim you're going for is not necessarily to banish and reject it because the heart basically with the shadow the harder you push the harder it will push back you have to dissolve it and reintegrate it and that's what she's doing with the you have no power over me you are in my life you are part of me you are in my head but you are not in charge you do not drive And I realized while I was watching it as well, Sarah says very key words, my will is as strong as yours and my kingdom is as great. 
And the amount of biblical imagery we've gone through on this, like, effectively, this is like she is taking on a Jesus-like aspect in that she's living for other people and being kind, and he's trying to tempt her with, no, just care about yourself, be, be selfish. selfish. My kingdom is as great. It's effectively saying this life that I am now going to pursue is going to be as fulfilling or more so than your callow, self-serving infinity. It's also worth noting that that Jareth faces this confrontation without any support from any of his subjects. Mm. And when Sarah enters the final, this M.C. Escher section of the labyrinth, she willingly goes in alone, but she goes in knowing that if she needs support, that these friends she's made along the way, these other parts of her, will be there to support her. Give me the child. Sarah, beware. I have been generous up until now, but I can be cruel. Generous? What have you done that's generous? Everything. Everything that you wanted, I have done. You asked that the child be taken. I took him. You cowered before me. I was frightening. I have reordered time. I have turned the world upside down, and I have done it all for you. Exhausted from living up to your expectations. Isn't that generous? Through dangers untold and hardships unnumbered, I have fought my way here to the castle beyond the Goblin City. For my will is as strong as yours. And my shield. Wait. Look, Sarah. Look what I am offering. Your dreams. And my kingdom is great. I ask for so little. Just let me rule you. And you can have everything that you want. Kingdom is great. Damn. I can never remember that line. Just fear me. Love me. Do as I say, and I will be your slave. My kingdom is great. My kingdom is great. You have no power over me. Oh, this has been one of the best podcasts we've ever done. <laughs> Thank you so much. <laughs> Um, so, yeah, Jareth is defeated by her decisive understanding of her new way. And you know, th- the film resolves itself wonderfully quickly as she uh, you know, ends up back in her room again. And it's the, it's the, it's the second... Like she's, uh, she's back in... Um, 
the in Toby's room or her parents' she's, room because the owl's she, flying around. When she returns yeah. to the world, she's at the foot of the stairs. She has right. to go yeah, upstairs. Yeah, she's, she's actually in like the main part of the house because she goes up again. And on right. the stroke of midnight, she goes back home. Like Cinderella. Okay. Exactly. Um, and uh, yeah, then as you said earlier, she gifts Lancelot to Toby with love. And uh, under, uh, with understanding that, you know, th- this is someone she now needs to take care of. And then she goes to put away childish things. Now, Brian Froud wanted that to be it. And it's just like a melancholy, sweet-natured, uh, bittersweet ending. And he didn't like the fact that Jim did this next bit. And I don't think anyone would, would get anywhere near as many people who freaking adore this movie without this last little bit because this is a Jim Henson move. He loved movies that you come away happy from. So you do get that bit of sweetness with the goodbye, Sarah. Um, but then you get a party. You get she she gets to reintegrate these aspects of herself, good and bad. The, the goblins are invited too, mm-hmm. just not Jareth. Yes, they're, they're all ah. Well, you say not Jared. Jared is the yeah, owl is he's, there. He's still he's there. He's looking at the window. Yeah. yeah. But if he turned around, can there. I play? No, you can't. Get out of here, you Jared. No, not know. right now. You know what, dude? Too soon. I, I feel like if he asked, they'd be like, as long as you stay as an owl, that's, that's you're fine. absolutely crazy. Yeah. He'd have to stay hold canapes all night. <laughs> I bought you hold a gift. Hold canapes and don't eat them. It's and a dormouse. No Nothing more. <laughs> but this this last part of the movie, I think, is vital to it working because otherwise it just diminishes childhood as this thing you need to completely forget about and it's distasteful as soon as you come of age and that's a terrible message it's important like you can never reach true maturity until you've gotten past that stage of your life where you're dismissive of a of childhood things and i think ending the movie on her putting away all the childish things would have would have not put her in yeah. full maturity. It would have put her in that, oh, everything I liked as a kid is dumb. Yeah. Teenagers going, that Muppets, I, that's for yeah. babies, are not adults. Yeah. Cause, cause, because yeah, I, think you you're, need... I think you're absolutely right. Like, there is there is that sense that, like, yes, you do have to put away the childhood things, but you know what? These elements of yourself and your internalized voices and all these different aspects of your personality, they're still there, and you can always come back to them whenever you like. Mm. Whenever you need them, they will be there. Absolutely. And, and it's, they're going to need them. Those, yes. <laughs> those childish things are what will give you energy and strength throughout your life. And if you ever intend to become a parent or a a carer of young people or a mentor in any way, you need to be able to connect with that more childlike side of yourself in order to be able to connect with people who are younger than you. Her father absolutely can't do that. Yeah. Absolutely. And he's not that great a father. It's also worth noting, by the way, that when she puts away the childish things, she is selective about it. When she takes the pictures down off the mirror, she takes down the pictures that have Jerry in them. She Ah. leaves a picture of her mother on her own and a picture of her mother and her. And it almost seems like she's she's refocusing. I'm not sweeping all of this away, but I am refocusing my relationship with my mother and I will work on that as a separate thing. Jerry is a phase. Jerry is now gone. Bye, Jerry. Jerry is outside looking for door mice. <laughs> exactly. And also, the, and also very significantly, the music box has to go in the drawer as well. This mm. fantasy, this illusion of what adulthood is or should be, 
that goes away in the drawer. That will about do it for Labyrinth. I believe we have reached the centre, and the only way to go now is further up and further in. Ladies and gentlemen, where can listeners find your favourite recent work? Uh, Mackenzie and Nathan. Uh, we have two podcasts between us. Uh, video game and the movie, the podcast. You can find that uh, on any podcast feed. We are at BGTM Pod on Twitter for that one. And Rainbow Connection. Uh, Nathan? Yeah, we have uh, Rainbow Connection, which we're a little bit behind on getting episodes out, but I'll be working on that soon, uh, which you can find at Rainbow Connection on Twitter, and that's the show where we talk about the Muppets. Our next episode's going to be on Treasure Island, so look forward to that. Uh, I'm also on Twitter at Kenzie Phoenix if you want to hear me ramble about random things. And Maya. So I have mentioned this before, but I just wanted to say again, because I'm pretty proud of this role. Uh, you can find me on Alex's own audiobook, uh, The Uncivil Outlaw, and uh, where I play a, a gender-fluid wizard named Merlane. And uh, I absolutely had so much fun with this character that I just wanted to, uh, to plug Uncivil Outlaw again and uh, uh, let people know that they could find that on... Uh, I would assume all of your your normal podcasting platforms yeah, that's, in, uh, um, in, the, in its audiobook form. Yeah, look for the New Century Multiverse wherever you find mm. podcasts. She continued, looking up now and engaging me with a quizzical blue stare. Would you perhaps be able to extract this from my head? I asked, tapping my eye patch, preferably without killing me. What would you want to go and do a thing like that for? Many reasons. Perhaps I don't want this responsibility, or think it's best being conveyed to someone else. She rose from her desk, crossed over, and stood before me. I think it's in exactly the right hands, she said, kindness in her voice, and perhaps a hint of sorrow. This is a little bit of a bittersweet thing, but there, because it came to a close so abruptly due to COVID, if you have access to HBO or HBO Max, the final episodes of Doom Patrol just dropped. Um, and again, because of everything that was going on with COVID, they the production unfortunately had to shut down before they could really shoot the final episode as they intended it to go. So the ninth and final episode is on there. I did a ton of water work for them for like three days straight. It's one of the best jobs and one of my favorite pieces of work that I've done. I played at least three different characters in that scene. I swear to God, I may have even done four, but... Um, I'm really quite proud of how it came out. I think it looks absolutely beautiful, and it's just a wonderful show, and I encourage people to definitely check out Doom Patrol. Is it a spoiler to say that you look amazing in that makeup? Uh, I don't think it's a spoiler, because <laughs> the, the Jane personalities are all kinds of silly and crazy and creative, so nice. use your okay. imagination. <laughs> okay. Toby. Toby? Toby? Just because, and I mentioned this before, because this is a coming-of-age story, I think it was a little bit of a, a coming-of-age story for myself mm -hmm. as well. Mm -hmm. I was so 
fascinated with the the puppetry and the effects and the costumes, the sets, the actors, like everything about it was so enchanting to me. And I just, I wanted this place and these characters to be real. And I wanted so much for this to be uh, a thing that you could go and visit like you would visit like a theme park or something. And it was a world that I wanted to exist in and that I could picture myself being actually very happy in. It felt very familiar and it felt like like you were going home. And that's kind of like, I get such warm, fuzzy feelings every time I watch this movie. It just brings me back to this place of like, these people feel like my friends, they feel like they're real. And this feels like a world that could be inhabited and that exists. Yeah, yes, I'm home. Goodbye, Sarah behind a cupboard or inside of a wardrobe or in the forest somewhere. Like, you could just stumble into it and just live there. And remember, fair maiden, should you need us? Yes, should you need us for any reason at all. I need you, Hoggle. You do? I don't know why, but every now and again in my life, for no reason at all. I need you. All of you. Oh, you do? Well, why didn't you say so? This recording ran to three hours, and we wandered off down a lot of twists and turns of this particular labyrinth that had to be cut for time. But it's all still too good for the oubliette, so you can find 40 minutes of deleted material in a Patreon-exclusive Cutting Class episode. And as always, our $15 sponsors get credit every episode, so thank you too. Joel Robinson, Finbar Nicole, Abel Savard, Michael Hasco, Trey Contreras, Matthew Webb, Angus Lee, Kevin Vahey, Daniel Salguero, Connor Kennedy, Johan Clayson, Joe Gasiga, Tim Rosensky, Christopher Wolf, Matthew A. Siebert, Kat Esman, Evan Jankowski, Sarah Montgomery, Toby Jungius, Dave Hickman, Tom Painter, Dan Hepner, Marty Hui, Mark Luksh, Brian Novak, Frankie Punzi, Aaron Lecluse, Lorraine Chisholm, Timothy Green, Cassandra Newman, Duran Barnett, Benjamin, Joseph Gluck, Greg Downing, Kieran Dashler, Dan Mayer, Jameis Enright, David Sheely, Chris Finnick, and Joe Crow.
injection, no love injection, no, no. 